And welcome to The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast covering everything that you need to know about the latest and greatest on Fantasy Flight Games Genesis Foundry, and of course, the Genesis role-playing game itself. I'm your host, GM Hooley. Now, this episode, we have a topic like no other, one that we get asked about a lot, and it's always a hot topic on social media, with more questions than a Brexit Q&A session. Now, if you guessed magic, you are absolutely right. As we start our multi-part discussion about how to bring magic into your Genesis settings in very different and unique ways. Additionally, we'll be chatting with the creator of the Inquisition setting, Guillaume Tardif, and answering your games and rules questions, plus so much more. But before all that, I need a partner in crime, don't I? A cohort, a best man, a compadre, an assistant, a lieutenant of amazing magnitude... My best mate, and I can't think of any other analogies right now, but you know who I'm talking about. HDM Chris. Chris, how's it going? I'm a lieutenant. I'm I'm only a lieutenant. All right. Maybe you're a captain, a general. <laughs> Is there I wanna anything? Be a, I want to be a I want to be a commodore. Commodore, right? A commodore. I want to be. I want to be. I want to be a commodore. I'm. I'm. Yeah, I'm a commodore. What is up, gamer nation? GM Chris here. Yeah, man. I'm. I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm just excited for the show. Mm. We got. We got. I'm sorry, guys. We got a long show. Uh, so <laughs> it's gonna be a long show. So get comfortable. <laughs> or get used to the pause button. That's as I keep telling people. So. <laughs> Oh, man. All right. Well, do you want to get into this madness? Absolutely. And let's start it off by talking news and announcements by Stoking the Fire. Stoking the Fire. And welcome to Stoking the Fire, a segment dedicated to letting you know all there is to know about the releases from the Genesis Foundry and the Genesis role-playing game. But first, Chris, would you like to take us through the D20 Radio Podcast of the Week? Ooh, yes, I would. All right, Gamer Nation. If you love Dungeons and Dragons and you love to listen to a bunch of Australians playing role-playing games even more than you love Dungeons and Dragons, <laughs> then you must listen to the Shared Sagas podcast. In their latest episode, the Stillwater Irregulars interview some peculiar characters, discover the wonders of ill-designed magical devices, and tip their hat to a famous Faerun face. Embroiled in an investigation of a terrible tragedy in the midst of Waterdeepian intrigue, our heroes start to get a sense of just how deep this rabbit hole goes. So join GM Tom and his crew of Ben, Mark, Nadia, Nick, and Sam, and don't miss this seminal chapter of Shared Sagas. And you guys can find Shared Sagas podcast and more amazing shows of gaming and geekery goodness over at D20 Radio. Now, look, I know that they are fellow Australians, but those guys are extremely funny, uh, and Nadia and Tom are just amazing people. I've um, spent a little bit of time uh, talking to them just online, but, uh, you know, they're uh, they're great. I I love that podcast. I can't get enough of it. So, uh, so yeah, definitely listen to that. It's a really good show. I'm proud to have them on the network. Mm, Yeah, Indeed. So, Chris, we've got some interesting news from FFG this week. 
Yeah, we sure do. Um, uh, earlier this week, FFG announced the first of their Spotlight series, finally, mm. <laughs> with an article on, no one was surprised, Ready Fight. Um, the unarmed compliment su- supplement for the Genesis role-playing game by friend of the podcast and all-around swanky dude, Mr. Keith Cappell. <laughs> this was followed by a precy of the supplement, including a breakdown of the way Keith tackled a number of rules related issues created when splitting up two brawl skills and mentioned these techniques, equipment, other elements of the product, all cool stuff that honestly we've already talked with Keith about on this show we for have. our very first episode. Yep. Uh, so that was cool. But uh, congrats, Keith. Uh, you, you deserve the recognition, man. It truly is a phenomenal product. Yeah, I absolutely love it. Keith has done an amazing job. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, some of the unique things, uh, Sam mentions it in the article itself, uh, but, uh, for example, using uh, the two brawl skills. So he's he's got brawl and he's split it up into two different ones. One's based on agility, one's based on brawn, which is great if you're wanting to run a game where you don't want to have to have the problem of one ability being used throughout the setting or one attribute being used throughout the setting, such as brawn, uh, which is obviously the case with the brawl skill. And you don't want it, uh, everyone to, to be having that one attribute as, uh, you know, maxed out. So, so to be able to split it up, great idea, great for the setting. Well done, Keith. It's an amazing supplement. Uh, so uh, congratulations from us. And speaking of that, uh, don't forget to make sure that you submit your favorite Foundry supplement to FFG for consideration. Now, what this means is at the end of the month, uh, FFG collate the results and uh, the most popular gets reviewed by the RPG team at FFG and offered up to the masses in their Foundry Spotlight series of articles uh, on the official FFG website. And this really is an incredible opportunity for all the authors to help sell their product through direct promotion by FFG. Um, Additionally, more sales means more incentives to keep them producing the products you want to see. So be sure to send an email to foundryspotlight at fantasyflightgames.com and tell them what Foundry product you want them to spotlight by placing the name of the product you want to vote for in the email subject line and then include a brief one to two sentence reason why you want FFG to review that product. But... Good stuff. What else? Mm. What else? FFG announced, Huli, because there's more stuff oh, coming out of it. Absolutely, there's so much stuff this week. So a little bit of a surprise. Uh, the following day, after uh, after the spotlight, uh, when FFG announced two products, one of which uh, is for the Star Wars role playing game Genesis uh, Big Brother, as it were, uh, namely Starships and Speeders. Now this book looks absolutely amazing. And I know um, uh, was worked on by freelancers uh, Phil Majewski of Studio 404 Games and Chris Hunt, who brought us the power of the Vril on the Foundry. But not to be outdone, they also dropped a preview of the Expanded Player's Guide with a look at the settings in the book. Three uh-huh. settings. Oh, it's absolutely cool. Like I, I need to get my hand on this book. Um, so the three settings that get mentioned are going to be Age of Myth, along with some great artwork of a Sphinx, um, and it's accompanying archetype the Demigod. Uh, then we had Monster World, which looks to be a Monster of the Week type setting, and it's, a, and it's accompanying uh, Mad Scientist artwork with these creepy cultists in the background. It was very, very cool. Uh, and of course, the Fearless Slayer archetype. Uh, can somebody say Buffy? It was really I can cool. say Buffy. Oh. <laughs> it does look very, very cool. 
And uh, and finally, they previewed the post-apocalyptic setting and its accompanying survivor archetype, which seems to be the talk of the town in recent times. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, they also previewed some equipment, uh, specifically weapons for use in these settings. And of course, for the... the uh, post-apocalyptic uh, setting, they have uh, the nail bat. <laughs> Negan, love it. <laughs> it's absolutely fantastic. I, I can't wait for this product to come out. Um, I, I, I adore it. And actually, if you pre-order it on FFG's website, mm. uh, at least at the time, you would actually get a special bonus set of cards that came with it. Or actually, no, am I thinking of the, I'm thinking of the GM screen, aren't I? Um, no, according to the FFG website, um, that it is the expanded players guide. Okay, so, let go. Um, yeah, because I know that uh, a number of um, us Australians have got together, uh, banded our resources and uh, and pre-ordered them so just so that we could get those cards. Um, because the postage to Australia is uh, like, well, we might as well be paying an arm each. So, <laughs> so it's a bit crazy. Yeah, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Mm. So, mm. Um, so yeah. So, um, Chris, what's on the foundry this week? Unfortunately, absolutely nothing. <laughs> well, that's not terribly surprising, I guess, considering the post-launch glut of content that we've been getting uh, and uh, the upcoming holiday months. Um, you know, things are obviously going to slow down a little bit as we head into Christmas. Uh, I guess you're right. But I wanted to gush over new stuff. <laughs> oh, well, you know what? Maybe I can gush over the old stuff. And so can you, listeners, simply by perusing the great Genesis Foundry content over at DriveThruRPG.com by searching using the words Genesis Foundry. And rest assured, there is other stuff coming from Keith Kappel and Studio 404 in particular. Uh, but we also know, just from the interviews that we've conducted on the show, uh, that um, you know, people like Sterling Hershey and John Dunn do have other items in the work. Plus, Chris and I have some stuff in the work as well. So don't panic. Good uh-huh. things come to those who wait. <laughs> All right. So speaking of good things coming, Huli, mm. uh, before we get to the main topic of tonight's show, should we uh, break out the rule books for a little look at some talent action? Absolutely. We've got a little segment um, just for that, and we call that die casting. Forge Podcast is all about bringing new creations to the table, and the Genesis RPG provides us all with a powerful set of tools to do so, specifically through skills and talents. The diecasting segment is our segment about closely examining individual skills, individual talents, and how they relate to the creations you craft. Now, last episode, we talked about the application of the discipline skill, but tonight, we're going to turn our focus back to talents. Absolutely, we are. Um, and it's a topic that has been requested by a friend of the podcast, Phil Majewski, better known as GM Phil, who would like to, us to discuss the Tier 2 talent, Basic Military Training, uh, from the core rulebook, and uh, the creation of talents that grant career skills. So the listing of Basic Military Training is actually on page 75 of the Genesis Core Rules, um, and there it states it's a passive, non-ranked talent, provides your character with uh, the athletics, Range heavy and resilience skills as career skills. Um, that's pretty good. Mm. Three skills to add to your career skill list. Um, so, what does that mean, Huli? So, what this means is that in the short term, not a lot. Um, but I mean, you get three career skills above and beyond the eight career skills that you've just gotten um, as part of character creation. In the long term, uh, across the life of those three skills, you can end up with a total saving of around about 75 XP. 
uh, providing obviously that you have no ranks in any of those skills to begin with. Now, there are some things uh, with this talent, though, that really stand out. The first thing is that the talent has a second paragraph, which says that the talent should be used in the weird war setting. Now, does this mean that, that um, that's all that it should be used for? Um, look, I, I think the committee's out on that one. Uh, but something to point out here is that basic military training is, uh, is not the only talent that does this. And if we look at Shadows of the Beanstalk setting, we see that it has a total of seven Tier 1 talents that provide at least one skill or an option for one or two skills chosen as a career skill. Right. But that's not the only setting book that does that either. Mm. Um, Realms of Terranoth um, also covers this in several talents uh, at, at both Tier 1 and Tier 2. Mm-hmm. But all of them do things slightly differently. And, and that, ladies and gents, is what we are going to talk about now. These these career skill talents overall. Mm. So let's first look at the different ways that each of these career skill talents handle this process uh, because uh, they all are very unique and can make for some really interesting talents for your individual or unique settings. Uh, firstly, though, let's look at our rules of thumb. Sound like a plan? Sounds like a plan. Awesome. So the, the first rule of thumb is when you're creating this type of talent, is to make it a tier two, usually. Now, usually. <laughs> there has to be that disclaimer, and I'll explain why. So we see that this, uh, this level of talent adds one or, or more career skills to your career skill list, um, and it's either a tier one or a tier two talent, but it's never higher than a tier two. Uh, furthermore, the examples where we see these talents as tier one, uh, when they exist, they only grant a single skill or a choice of, of, uh, of, an, of two or three skills, um, but it's only a single skill that you can choose. Um, and if it grants more skills, it's always costed as a tier two talent. Always, always. Mm. So... Thus, our first rule of thumb is make it tier two, usually. Mm. I mean, and Julio, I know we'll get to this at the end, especially with uh, uh, some of the discussion we're going to have around some of the custom talents we've created for this. Mm. But, um, you know, if you're going to offer more than one skill, make it a tier two. Um, Now, the second rule of thumb is, and this is kind of a nebulous one, but it's extremely important, perhaps one of the most important when you're costing out a talent Mm -hmm. like this. Combat and magic skills rate higher. Mm. in other words, combat skills, magic skills, they need skills. They need to be more costly than other skills in this kind of talent. Uh, does that mean that you give it a higher tier? No, not really. What, what, what does that mean? It, it, it means that if your career skill talent adds a combat skill or a magic skill to the character's career list, it should either be tier two or provide incredibly restricted usage as a tier one talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Templar talent, Huli from Terranoth, mm-hmm. is, 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 a, is the prime and, and honestly only example of this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, where, you know, Templar basically says, you know, that d- divine is now, a, divine magic, obviously, is now a career skill for your character. Um, but they can only cast one spell using this skill per encounter. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so very, very restricted. Mm-hmm. Um, also, uh, as a tier two talent, um, if you cost it that, if, if it has a combat or magic skill in it, it should only include a single skill of either combat or magic. 
Um, and this is in addition to any other skills it may grant your career list. Mm. And, and lastly, even when costed at tier two, if a combat or magic skill is a part of it, it should be accompanied by only one other skill, usually. Mm. Um, in mm. other words, if, if a career skill talent at tier two includes a combat or magic, magic skill, it should typically be one of two skills the talent grants you. Um, however, there are two exceptions to that rule that we see, uh, the, the hunter talent from realms of Tyranoth, mm. uh, setting. And, and of course, as you just mentioned, it will be the basic military training, mm. um, uh, from, from the core rules. Now, I'm a little bit confused as to why they aren't tier three. Uh, but I'm going to suggest that it's probably, uh, as a result of playtesting. Um, and it does highlight an important lesson that uh, it doesn't matter what our rules of thumb are suggesting. The final result of a talent will depend greatly on its playability. And the only way to find that out is to playtest, playtest, playtest. Having, having said that, um, our guess is that those two talents have the following formula of one combat skill, one knowledge skill, and a rarely used skill. So if we look at basic military training, it's got, uh, for its main skill, obviously it's ranged heavy, uh, but then it has athletics as its secondary skill because athletics gets used fairly often. And then the the dump skill, for want of a, a better term, is resilience. Now, I know that we spoke about resilience um, a couple of episodes ago, but resilience doesn't get a lot of love except in certain circumstances. And hopefully, if you've listened to that episode, you will have changed your mind on that. But uh, but resilience is the least used skill, and it's also a little bit thematic too. Hunter is the the other one that uh, that you mentioned, Chris, and ranged again is the 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 main skill. Knowledge geography um, is the uh, the secondary skill, and then survival again. Survival isn't isn't used very often, but again, it's going to be dependent highly on what setting that you're running and how things are going to play out in your campaign as to which one's going to be, um, you know, used more often. I, I completely agree. Um, and, and honestly, a lot of the, all this ties in, I think to our last rule of thumb. So we have make it tier two, usually mm-hmm. combat skills rate higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's our last rule of thumb. So our last rule of thumb is that it has to fit a thematic concept. Every example we see of a talent that provides a career skill is designed to accommodate a specific character theme or a concept or even a background uh, that a character has. This not only informs the naming and fluff of the talent, um, but the, the skill choices as well. Typically, a good rule of thumb is to include a thematic choice for, as I mentioned before, as an active skill, a uh, passive skill, and then a knowledge skill. Unless, and there's a big unless here, uh, unless combat or magic is the active skill, in which case you should then typically pick a passive or a knowledge skill to accompany it. Now, a good thing to note here is that with talents like Bard and Runic Law, for example, the skill accompanying the magic skill in these cases, Verse and Runes, is the associated knowledge skill that is used to calculate some of the spell action effects. Now, we'll talk more about that in our next section. But to highlight that on page 115, for example, uh, on the, uh, in the realms of Terranoth, we see that both the runes and verse magic skills use knowledge lore to power their abilities. And what do we see in the Bard and Runic lore talents? Knowledge lore is the second skill you get as the career skill. So it's very, very linked mechanically, 
as well as thematically. Yeah. I think it's worthwhile to maybe quickly go over if people are looking for for examples of these kinds of talents they can find in the published materials so mm. far. Yep. Uh, you know, we've we've obviously talked about the the one talent that's available already in the the core book, right? Mm. Um, which is the, the 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 impetus of Phil's question. Um, <laughs> we, as we've said, we see several of these talents not only in realms of Terranoth but also in Shadow of the Beanstalk. Mm. Um, so Terranoth actually came out first, um, and we we see that there's there's uh, six of these talents that are there. One of them is tier one, which we just talked about previously. That's Templar. Mm-hmm. And it gives you simply access to divine and divine only. And you can only use it once, you know, to, to cast a, a spell. That's it, you mm-hmm. know, per encounter. Mm-hmm. The rest are all tier two. Um, we have, uh, we have, we have what we have adventurer, mm-hmm. uh, which gives you two skills only, mm-hmm. um, athletics and knowledge of entering. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got bard, which gives you knowledge, lore and verse. Mm-hmm. Okay. We have Hunter, which gives you knowledge, geography, range, and survival. We talked about that one, a bit of an odd man out. Yep. Runic lore, which you just mentioned also as well, mm-hmm. uh, with Bar, which gives you knowledge, lore, and runes. And then we have the interesting, and I think well-costed and, and very thematic, uh, well-traveled, mm. uh, which gives knowledge, geography, negotiation, and vigilance. Three very disparate skill choices mm-hmm. that don't seem to go together on face until you put them into that theme. Yeah. And again, that's where, that's where that theme can really draw it together for an appropriate skill choice mm. set. Now, one thing that I am going to mention is Templar. There has been a lot of talk recently uh, on the Genesis uh, community group about Templar and how it actually works and whether it's even worth the 5 XP, especially if you've, you know, you, you're wanting to start off with that. And, uh, you know, uh, people are saying that, well, why don't you just choose a career that has uh, that has a divine skill already in it? And I think it boils down to this. It's going to be dependent on what the setting is, uh, because you may not have any real clerics out there, for want of a better term. Um, but it may also be what sort of a character concept you, you want to go for. Um, if you wanting to have someone who's really good at combat, like the warrior, um, but you still want to have that little bit of, you know, divine skill and you want to create a paladin type, Templar, the Templar talent for only five XP is well worth it. Um, because especially it can represent lay on hands. It can represent, um, you know, buffing for blesses and things like that as well, that, you know, a paladin is only going to do once per encounter anyway. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that people um, are probably not necessarily looking at Templar in the way that they should. Uh, but, uh, yeah, because I, I find that it, it's an extremely good talent and it's really cheap to get access to uh, to a magic skill. And as I even mentioned on the boards themselves, uh, that Templar is one of those ones that is just begging to be uh, added to with, I mean, there's already improved Templar, uh, that I would love to see other things like lay on hands as a, as its own ability that you have to have Templar and create these trees. Because I think that that will work really, really well if you wanting to, if you've got players that are only wanting to play D&D and you're trying to bring them across to Genesis, you want to make that transition as easy as possible. And if you can bring in things like talents that they can relate to, it's going to make that transition that much easier. I don't know. What do you think, Chris? 
Oh, I absolutely agree. I think Templar is well-costed and very useful. I've seen it used as a killer talent in a couple ways. Mm. The most common is you you have the warrior who takes Templar, mm. and in combat, the first thing they do is basically bless themselves. Yeah. They, they, they use it to cast Augment on themselves mm. um, at, at incredibly reduced difficulty mm-hmm. um, because they're casting it on themselves. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, so it's, it's not like they need to add a whole bunch of, uh, you know, extra additional effects to it. Mm. Um, and then boom, they, they tear ass into combat with an extra green die in their pools. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's, yeah, I, I, that, that's, that's, that's wicked. Awesome. Yep. Um, the other way I've seen it used is actually, uh, interestingly enough with arcane or runic casters, um, who are, are, you know, typically glass cannons, mm-hmm. um, Having that again, you typically only need it once an encounter. That once an encounter ability to uh, kind of have a get out of jail free card and cast a heal spell <laughs> <laughs> uh, is extremely nice. Yeah. So, I mean, even, even so, if you've got like an arcane person who's just got the arcane skill, just to have that additional option of the other range of uh, of skills that you've missed out on because arcane doesn't have everything in it. Um, you know, you, you kind of double dipping and for five XP, well worth it. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Mm. Now, what's interesting to me more so, and I think there's a lot of learning to be taken here are the very talents that are available in shadow of the beanstalk mm. because they follow a very unique pattern. Mm. So the, the process that they have, they're all tier one, which, uh, which is quite interesting. Um, and each of them has really a choice of uh, of skills. They do each one does it a little bit differently, but we I'll just go through them. So we have uh, corporate drone, which allows you to choose knowledge society or negotiation. Uh, Disenfrancesco, um, or however it's pronounced, I can never say it properly, um, is streetwise or survival. Uh, former professor is choose one knowledge skill. Trimath Contact is choose Melee or Skullduggery, which is kind of cool. Um, Union Member is choose Athletics, Mechanics, or Operating. So you've got a choice of three skills, but you only ever get one. World War Vet, uh, you get uh, Range Tebby or Resilience. And then Years on the Force is Perception or Range Light. All of those are great, especially if you're taking careers that don't have, especially those last two, World War Vet, and use on the force. If you've taken a career that doesn't have uh, ranged weaponry on their list, it's a great way to just dip into it. Additionally, each one of these talents has a special favor effect. Now, for those who, who don't have Shadow of the Beanstalk, favors are very similar if you've played Star Wars. It's very, very similar to Obligation. In my opinion, it actually works a little bit better than Obligation um, because you don't have the the whole notion of rolling dice at the start of every session. So it makes it a little bit more freeform for you. Um, but allows them to have a direct connection to the setting as well because they have to link into one of the different factions that exist within the setting. Uh, and for that, at the start of every session or uh, once per... I think it's once per session, isn't it, Chris? I believe so, yes. The, what, what they can do is that they can get a small favour at no cost. Um, and that just allows them to link into the story that little bit better um, and link into the setting 
So um, really, really handy. And it's not sort of overly powerful, but characters can have it right from tier one, which means they, they if they've got five XP left over um, after character creation, they can throw one of those in there, link them directly into the story, and then they also get this career skill um, to uh, to give them a boost as well. So really unique uh, way of doing it, um, but in my opinion, fantastic uh, game design. Yeah, I... I love I love the the fact that it adds the favor in because it's so wonderfully specific to the setting. Mm. But additionally, the fact that it really is the epitome of the idea of having thematically focused talents where it really is giving it's like taking this talent is a mechanical representation of the background or faction status your character has. Mm. Um, and I, I absolutely love that. Mm. So, OK, Huli. Mm. <clears throat> Let us take all this uh, knowledge, this advice, these examples. Yep. Now let's put it to task, man. Mm. Let's let, let's uh, let, let's 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 create some talents uh, as we've started to do, and as we like to do. Um, Huli and I both have, have have taken our stab at putting these uh, rules of thumb into play uh, with some brand new talents to Genesis, straight from our brain to your playtesting <laughs> table. <laughs> Would you like to go first, my good friend? I certainly can. Awesome. Um, so, uh, obviously, uh, my favorite setting of all time is Star Wars. <laughs> um, and I, I have an absolute love for science fiction and space opera um, role-playing settings. Hmm. Uh, so, I, I kind of let that love and passion inform my design here. And I, I for... I don't need, I don't think I need to explain the thematic idea too much, but my talent is called Space Legs. Right. <laughs> Um, it is a tier two, mm-hmm. um, activation passive, uh, obviously ranked not, uh, as these talents are not ranked. Mm-hmm. Um, and description, your character gains astro cartography and gunnery as career skills. Mm. That's it. Um, you know, as, as, as for how, why I designed it this way, I, I love the idea of a tier two talent that can be taken by any career in, in a, a, a sci-fi or space opera setting. Mm-hmm. To represent their familiarity or their background or their history um, in a setting with starfighters, mm. um, you know they're, they're not necessarily pilots, um, and, and that's the whole point of this: is they have space legs, but they're not pilots, right? Mm-hmm. Um, anyone who wants to be an experienced pilot, they're typically going to take a career as appropriate. Mm. But the idea is that these kinds of people would know their way around the support roles on a starship, yeah. Um, and and having that ability to slip into a gunner's chair, um, or or get to to get to a computer or a comm station and plot something, um, very worthwhile. And obviously, with two skills added, one of them being a combat skill, mm-hmm. I, I decided to cost this at tier two mm-hmm. with no special benefits. Right. Um. And 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 while the best rule of thumb, as we said before, for a tier two that grants a combat skill is to pair it with a knowledge skill, usually, mm-hmm. um, for me, astrocartography is still in the same vein. Yeah. Um. And, and quite frankly, equally limited in its regular use. Yep. So, uh, yeah, it made good sense to me. So, yeah. that's that's space legs. That's cool. Using uh, astrocartography is it's kind of in the same sort of vein as using mechanics. It's still an intellect based skill, but uh, you know you're not always using it to fix something. It's it's um, or you know work out something as per the knowledge skills. Um, or to know a particular fact, you can default to those skills as well. So, yeah, that's cool. I like it. Thanks. So, for mine, I went a little bit piratey, as I do. Um, so, uh, for me, 
Um, I wanted to to try and uh, mess around a little bit with uh, the tier one aspect uh, because I really, really like uh, some of the talents that we see in Shadows of the Beanstalk. Shadow of the Beanstalk, because I keep on giving it an S. But, <laughs> but anyway, um, so what I decided to create was Able Deckhand. Very similar in concept to, to what your suggestion was with Space Legs, Chris, is that um, if you've got a pirate setting um, and, you know, you want to make sure that everybody on board can do their thing or can do something on board the ship, um, you know, you want to give them skills that they can utilise during the campaign. Um, so, uh, with Able Deckhand, Tier 1, uh, active, uh, sorry, active um, activation, should I say, uh, is going to be passive. It's a non-ranked uh, talent. Uh, your character gains navigation or operating as a career skill. In addition, once per session, uh, your character may add uh, two boost die to any assist maneuver performing to repair a ship they are traveling on instead of the regular single boost die. Now, we wanted to do something a little bit different here, and I love adding boost die uh, into the mix, having run a pirate-style campaign in the past. I know that many PCs lack those skills, as I mentioned before, uh, to help run the ship, should the captain, for example, be incapacitated or killed. Uh, in my opinion, this talent closes that gap, but it's, it's, fun, it's fun to have uh, in a pirate setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking at it technically, though, the boost provide, uh, provided is very specific and may not come up at all during the session, uh, but when it does, it can be handy. Couple that with um, some boost from a leadership check from another PC, uh, and basically it's a boost-a-thon. Uh, something I found uh, the players love during the session because they're always fishing for uh, for a boost die. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's great. And I actually agree. I think it's very well-costed. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're, you're not providing a combat skill. Uh, you're giving one skill. It's a choice. And you get a little nice little situational once once per session benefit. I think it's great. Mm. Well, well done. Thanks. We're well, great discussion and great talents here. So, Huli, where can listeners find a copy of these talents that we have just created on the show? Indeed, they can visit our website at www.forgegenesis.com uh, under our resource section where you can find these talents and all of our content from previous episodes. Uh, plus, you can find a number of links to community content, the Genesis Foundry itself, and, of course, the FFG website. Awesome. And listeners, if you have something you'd like us to talk about on the show, a talent, a skill, or any other game mechanic you'd like to know more about, please send us a message on any of our social media platforms or shoot us off an email, forgegenesis at d20radio.com. So, Huli, mm. I think it is time to fire up the bellows and increase the heat so we can get on to discussing a topic that I cannot wait to talk about. I've been ramped on this for two weeks. I'm not saying I'm nervous, but is it really that time? <laughs> It's that time. It is time. Fire up the furnace. The furnace. And welcome to the furnace, the segment where we take a deep dive into a topic concerning custom creations using the Genesis role-playing game. And tonight we're going to tackle a topic that will take us much longer than a single episode to discuss. Uh, and amongst experienced players and GMs, it is often considered as one of the most enjoyable parts of the system to use and play with, but ironically, among the inexperienced, it's often regarded as confusing 
or the most difficult part of the system to play, which honestly could not be further from the truth. Uh, you're right. I mean, what, and what we're going to dive in tonight uh, in, in the first of what will be a multi-part series <laughs> uh, is, is the magic system within Genesis. Mm. Uh, first introduced as an optional rule set in the core rulebook and then expanded heavily upon in Realms of Tyranoth, the magic system in Genesis is a bold new take on representing mystical and magical powers in a role-playing game that sits very much in stark contrast to nearly every other system that has come before it. Uh, even, even, even the predecessor of Genesis, FFG's Star Wars RPG, uh, which introduced a brand new take on force powers, is still only a faint ancestor of the Genesis magic system, which, which separates itself in crucial ways as a genuine evolution of the mechanics behind magical powers in a narrative RPG. Yeah. And that's the heart of it, Chris, because the magic system in Genesis is one of the most advanced expressions of the narrative design inherent in this system, providing boundless opportunities for complete flexibility while still being reined in by good, balanced mechanics. But this inherent flexibility and narrative expansion is divergent from the rigid magic rules in virtually every other popular RPG, Cough Cough D&D, which, as we've said, means that new players and GMs are often left speechless, scratching their heads in confusion. Mm-hmm. So tonight, we're going to take the first steps to easily explain and, and demystify the magic system of Genesis. Not just so that new players and GMs can easily understand it and enjoy it, and by the end of this episode, tonight, you will. Mm. Um, but, but, but also, and more importantly, to break it down to some of the core components and rules of thumb that any designer or aspiring designer of new Genesis material should take to heart. And that's really the lens we are going to focus our discussion through. Yep. Because the bones of the magic system are so versatile and so expandable, as we'll get to in later episodes, they can be modified and reskinned to accomplish nearly any kind of magical, supernatural, or superhuman power <laughs> in role-playing games. Mm. And, and, and understanding these core principles is the first step to eventually reskinning and restructuring the core magic system for your own purposes in your own settings. Mm. <clears throat> but tonight, we're going to focus on the core rules mm -hmm. and focus on how to expand those rules in their current skin. Yeah. Sounds like a plan. As intimidating as that might seem, it really isn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love, I love, I love, I love, I love the magic system in this game. Agreed. Um, once I understood it, mm. um, I, I became infatuated with it. I think it's the greatest part of the system. I, I, I absolutely, I mean, I mean, Huli, the first, the first ever thing I ever wrote, which I'll never be able to publish, no, um, unfortunately <laughs> for Genesis was a Harry Potter setting, which mm. you guys can actually download if you want it. Um, it's, it's over in the backer zone section of d20 radio.com, mm. uh, free to the world. Mm. <clears throat> and you know, I, I learned a lot doing that. My current offering on the foundry takes a really weird spin on the <laughs> the core magic system. I just I, I love it. I love the magic system. So I, I really want to talk about this. But where do we where do we where do we start? Okay. So before we go any further, we're gonna have to give a bit of a boilerplate. Um core rules versus Terranoth. So <laughs> we need to point out that there are currently two published products that utilize or present the magic system, uh, the core rules 
and uh, Realms of Terranoth. Now, while we will be referencing Terranoth on occasion, we're going to try pretty hard uh, to keep our discussion within the rules presented in the core rulebook, as this is the, the base design and template for magic. Terranoth is a great example of how to expand that rule set even further. Um, but the only thing to consider is that we may need to revisit some of this discussion once the expanded player guide arrives, since we know from the FFG website, with their example spell cards available to people who pre-order, as we mentioned before, that they have some new spell effects being added to the game, namely Mask, Predict, and Transform. Now, what these spells will do exactly, we're just going to have to speculate for the moment. But we're going to probably, we'll discuss that at a later stage. So, we'll just move <laughs> that aside for the moment and we'll just focus on the core rules of magic. I, I like it. I like it. So, let's start with the core rules of magic here. This is the focus of, 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 our, of our discussion tonight. And as we, we tackle this topic... Um, in a simple but roundabout way, we're going to dive into the core rules. But at the same time, as we alluded to earlier, we're going to be highlighting as we go um, some of the learnings or our particular, quote unquote, rules of thumb yeah. when it comes yeah. to the magic mechanics. And, and don't worry, we will summarize them all at the end because <laughs> uh, there's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, our, uh, our goal in this discussion is to really talk about those core rules in the context of peeling apart the layers of design, really focusing our lens on the mechanics behind everything and why things work the way they do so that we can really explain them to you all in a way that speaks to designers and to game masters. And I think there's something that we have to mention as well for people who only play or want to play Genesis. Don't be intimidated or feel left behind by many of the processes that we'll be discussing during this segment. Yes, it's true that we'll be dissecting magic in Genesis and taking a look, uh, a solid look, behind the curtain. But our intention is to tackle it in a very step-by-step process to make the information we provide useful for anyone. And that includes players, not just GMs, and those wishing to create material for submission to the Foundry. So where does it start, Huli? When we're talking and we're when you're trying to explain to a brand newbie <laughs> the core rules of mechanic, where do you start? Um, at the at the beginning, because uh, it's a very good place to start. Bit of a song in that. Um, <laughs> interestingly, um, we we found that the easiest way to explain the Genesis Magic system uh, to someone is to actually start at the very end. In actual fact. Which goes against the song. Um, or with the effects. So, in other words, the spells. Ah. Let's look at the, the basic spells. So, casting a spell costs an action and, which is very important, two strain. Mm-hmm. So, why is the two strain important? This, 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 there's a lot of discussion around that. Yeah, yeah there is. <laughs> um, and look, I'll be honest and say that up until recently, I haven't done a lot of magic use. I've done it, obviously, in some live play that I've done previously on, on the, the Dice Pool, uh, but I've, uh, I've really started getting into a campaign at the moment where magic is being used a lot more. And it's really interesting to see on the table. If you've never seen it, give it a try, um, because on paper, it just looks like, wow, it's like too strain. That's nothing. If you look at it just on paper, that may be true. But in play, when you start having to power spells with advantages, 
you're just not getting strain back the way that you want to um, because all of that's being tied up uh, and chewed up with powering the, the abilities of the spells. And it really gives the sensation of, uh, you know, that there is a limit to the casting. Mechanically, it also allows balance in-game. Now, the rules are all, uh, you know, they talk about magic not being able to solve everything. And so the the system is accounting for that uh, by placing this finite limit uh, on spells by costing strain. Additionally, using magic is seen in many mediums. If you look into any sort of um, stories where, where magic is involved, uh, we see that casting magic is exhausting. So this, uh, the, the fact that strain represents uh, your exhaustion levels, uh, it then becomes thematically appropriate. Yeah, the idea, the idea of spending personal energy mm. to, to cast a spell is super thematic. Mm. But I learned this, to your earlier point, Huli, I learned this so hard when designing and then playtesting the heck out of my Harry Potter setting mm how important that two strain cost is because you don't have spell slots in this game. No. You can cast a spell whenever you feel like it. If you have the strain, you can do it. Mm. You, you can, you can spam spells all the live long day, mm. but two strain per casting adds up. Mm. And as we'll get to not in this episode, unfortunately, but in later episodes, um, there are very specific rules around how threat and despair are spent oh, yeah. for Matt checks specifically Mm -hmm. um which means that if you if you generate threat you will be adding on even more strain than you would if it was a combat check Mm. so so i mean it it i mean in in early versions of my playtesting for harry potter you had players that thought they knew what they were doing and they didn't realize how badly they needed to start conserving their strain we would have we we had people dropping in the second round of combat (laughs) and and to be fair those are those are six PCs in a party that all they do is cast spells. There's like very little else there. They're, they're all spell casters, mm-hmm. and that's what they do. That's what you do in Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. And and so, but the players had to learn very quickly that oh my gosh, I really have to conserve strength. So <laughs> so so it matters. Okay, so so a spell costs an action uh, and two strain mm-hmm. when you do. It. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So Chris, what? is a spell (laughs) um okay so this is the the biggest departure point when it comes to genesis magic like unlike other rpgs out there genesis takes this very narrative and 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 combined view of magical effects and and this can really throw the uninitiated off guard especially those that come from a world where they they learn to role play playing D &D. Mm. because in in most role-playing games Players are used to very discreet, sometimes painfully discreet spell effects. Mm. Um, what do I mean? Uh, okay, so instead of having discreet options for Ray of Frost, Electric Shock, Burning Hands, Thunderclap, Magic Missile, Acid Arrow, <laughs> Divine Smite, Fireball, Chain Lightning, Lightning Bolt, Sunburst, Scorching Ray, Poison Ray, Inflict <laughs> Wounds, etc., 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 you have one spell called attack right it is used to attack someone and deal damage to them <laughs> mm-hmm. which is really something that that throws a lot of people off the the system itself because they they can't necessarily get their head around it for example you know why 
why can't I just cast Acid Arrow and it does something? You know, why can't I just, you know, fire off a fireball and it, I just roll some dice and it does something? You know, these are the questions that, that come up constantly by players who, and anyone really, who is, is wanting to get into Genesis, you know, so, so yeah. And the answer to that question is you can do that. Mm. It's, we'll, we'll get there. (laughs) (laughs) But honestly, Huli, all of this discussion around how spells work in Genesis leads us to our first magic rule of thumb. Mm. And that is that a spell should cover a specific but broad effect. Yes. So the best way to think about this is that a spell is a game mechanic that affects a character or an object in a certain broad way. Uh, to put it more succinctly, I, I guess it can be something that, that damages something, it protects something, it buffs something, it can debuff something. It can heal something, and it can create a new something, etc., etc. So, think about spells in these kind of large, broad, sweeping effects. Uh, yes, you can get very, very specific with specific uh, special effects within the spells, but don't worry about that right now. We will get to that later on. <laughs> As I said. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to be saying that a lot, I, <laughs> I think. Um, so we, we, but you got to start here. Yeah. Understand what a spell is and the fact that it's incredibly broad. Mm. Um, additionally, that broad effect of a spell should typically have extremely broad uses in narrative encounters out of combat mm-hmm. and mm. more detailed or I should say restricted generic effects while within a structured encounter. Mm. Um, this is another thing that often throws people off, um, because in a game like, for example, Dungeons and Dragons, it's like, nope, this is what the spell does. doesn't matter whether you're in an encounter, out of an encounter. It doesn't matter whether you're asleep. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> These, this is the precise thing the spell does. <laughs> Genesis being a very narrative system. These broad spells and these spell types have narrative uses that are equally broad when you're outside of combat. <laughs> Um, and, and those narrative uses can and should be very broad. But when you're talking about a structured encounter, those uses should be mechanically specific and also extremely basic. Because mm. then kind of without that basic level of, of, of use, it's going to slow down combat. And this is the right. reason why that some, uh, some products like the spell cards uh, that you can get on the Foundry that they are very, very useful because ahead of schedule, you can work out the difficulty of a spell. So if you want to have a you know spell book, that uh, you can have that and just go right. I'm going to uh, when it comes up to you know when you think you want to act in the round, you can just go right. I'm going to cast this spell that you've named and you've you've given a really cool description. Um, but it's very, very simple. Very, very simple. And this leads us to magical rule of thumb number two. Mm. Which is a spell effect in a structured encounter should be limited, specific, and very basic in its effect and difficulty. The best way I like to think about this is asking myself, 
what is the simplest effect this spell should achieve? Mm. How difficult should that simplest effect be? And, and the answers to both those questions should provide the base structured encounter effect for the spell. Mm. Can it be more powerful? Absolutely. But we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll come to that. Um, one of the things that I've found with, with playing with spells um, is that people get sort of a little bit too hung up on that they wanted to have a specific, again, I know that we're probably going to, you know, throw a bit of dirt on D&D here, but it's because, and there are a lot of other systems that do it as well, Pathfinder, um, a whole heap of other systems that, that have a very, very specific mention of what a, uh, what a spell does. You've got to remove yourself away from that. And you've really got to look at, when it comes to a spell, what the intent of the spell is, um, rather than what school of thought it's from. Um, so instead of it being, you know, conjuration or instead of it being, you know, abjuration or whatever else, and you've got to work out what school it's from, work out what the intent is. So the other night when we were playing, I had a player who wanted to do the equivalent of, of Black Tentacles from, from Pathfinder. So uh, for those at home who aren't familiar with Black Tentacles, um, the spell grapples creatures in its area of effect. It does other things as well, but and it's a fourth level spell, so it's pretty powerful. Um, now, the first thing he said that he wanted to do was to summon it. So he wanted to use Conjure. Uh, but I had to ask what effect it was that he was going for. What was, what was his intention? And his response was that he all that he wanted to do was restrict uh, this this creature's movement that uh, that was attacking the rest of the party. And um, he he basically wanted to to stop it attacking. Now that to me sounds like a curse. And when you look at the spell, that's exactly what it's doing. In fact, it has an effect uh, which prevents the, the creature from attacking by staggering it. What you're describing there is you don't need to be going, well, is it a conjuration because it's, it's tentacles? Is it this? No. You know what you want to do because you, you've looked at what the effect is that you want and then you're just basing the difficulty and the rest of it is purely narrative. You hit the nail on the head there. In your wording. And this is what most people miss when they get into arguments around what spell could be what. Uh, It is about the intent of the effect on the target. Okay. It's like, well, I'm creating tentacles. Isn't that conjuration? I don't care if you wait. What? I don't care. (laughs) What are you trying to do to the target? Hmm. Are you trying to harm them? No, I'm not trying. I mean, are you trying to deal damage? Uh, yes. Okay. Well, great. Your attack. That's a, it's an attack spell. Yeah. Well, no. I'm just trying to to bind them to hinder them. Okay. Great. You're trying to hinder the target without damaging it. That is curse. Mm. Okay. So that's the best way to think about it. And when we talk about these broad uses for spells, th- that's and, and as we'll get to in a moment with the eight spells that are presented in the core rules, that's how they're defined. They're defined by these broad effects they have on the target. Mm. All right. And to your earlier conversation, like I was weaned on it, so it took me a while to get away from it. I have grown to hate Vancian magic. (laughs) 
Um, and and for those who don't know what that is, Vancy and Magic is it's it's based off the type. I I forget what book series it was um, that that Vance wrote, but uh, the, the, he introduced in 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 fantasy fiction the concept of basically, for lack of a better term, spell slots. Okay, mm. where. You know, it's it's the 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 five the five minute wizard basically. It's like, all right, so we got into we got into a big fight. I blew my wad. Sorry, guys, I'm useless the rest of the day. I need to sleep and recharge all my spells. Right. Uh, and and you know, later editions of other systems like the the most recent version of Dungeons and Dragons, um, uh, even even fourth edition actually took a stab at this, and and, and Pathfinder. They've tried to ameliorate that somewhat. By introducing very low level things that that casters can quote unquote always do, mm. but in Genesis it's still much more broad. You can always do everything; it mm. just costs you. Yep. Maybe it's time to bring this discussion into focus by talking about the the eight spell actions that are available in the core rules. Mm. So there's eight spell actions which are detailed in the core rules. Um, and again, we're going to leave what um, is coming in uh, the Expanded Player's Guide for a later episode. But the eight core spell actions that are, uh, are there is Attack, Augment, Barrier, Conjure, Curse, Dispel, Heal, and Utility. Okay. Now, with these eight spell actions, you can see how our rule of thumb applies. They're broadly categorized uh, and, and they're quite basic with a single word indicating their general intent. In other words, the effect that the spell action provides. Now, you're probably thinking that these sound an awful lot like schools of magic. And to be honest, if that helps you ease into this process, you go right ahead. Although you may be doing yourself a disservice, uh, because as I mentioned, these spell actions have more to do with the effect or the intent of the spell rather than an actual school of magic. That's the way to think about it. What effect is it going to have on the target? That's right. So for each spell, we can briefly talk about um, you know the 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 magic uh, as far as how each of those uh, those skill actions are used. Now, each of these spells has a base difficulty to use them, uh, and they are spelled out, no pun intended, uh, in the rules. But Chris, the big question is, what do each of them do? You know, an attack spell is just what it sounds like. It's used to deal damage to a target. Um, and, and and we're not going to get into this detail for all of them, but because you guys can read. But <laughs> But the idea of bringing those two rules of thumb to bear that we talked about where a spell should a spell should cover a specific but broad effect and a spell effect in a structured encounter should be limited, specific and very basic in its effect and difficulty. Mm. When you start with something basic like attack, which is what most people think of when they think of magic, um, that that easy one purple die check that you have to make allows you to target a single character at short range, okay? And that's important, not engaged. <laughs> <laughs> It's not, it's not short range or less. It's no at short range, no more, no less, um, and deal damage to them. Mm. Um, uh, depending on the you know uh, depending on the skill you're using, um, it, it's uh, it, damage equal to uh, the the characteristic associated with the skill. We'll come to that. <laughs> um, plus plus one for each uncancelled success, like a combat check. Mm. Um, so th- that's it, and that's actually relatively small damage. I mean, even even a even a powerful character with like a a powerful wizard guy who's using arcana and has like a four intellect. That's a base damage of four plus successes. I mean, that's, 
that's weak from most combative standards, actually. Yes and uh, no. I mean, if you look at it that way, um, look at Magic Missile. Magic Missile only does 1d4 plus 1 at first level. Yeah, you but know? that's my point. Mm. Is That's my point, is that base effect is supposed to be basic. Yeah. Fairly weak. It can get a lot more powerful when you start enhancing it, but we'll, we'll come to that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so at a high level, attack is about attack. Augment, all right? Augment. What's the theme for augment? What's the effect it's trying to achieve? Well, obviously, it's it's kind of like your bless spell or your um, you know something that is going to benefit the character. So it's going to augment them to make them a little bit better. It's a buff. It's a buff. Yeah. Um, so for an average check, all that you're going to get for a success is going to be that they add. A, an ability die to their check. Now, this is something that can be a little bit tricky, and I just want to mention this very briefly because um, somebody made the mistake the other night about it, is that it is adding a single green die to the pool. It right. isn't increasing your attribute because somebody decided that, oh, but um, yes, my soak gets increased because it's increasing my... No, that's not how that works. <laughs> to quote Han Solo, um, it is just one green die that gets put into the check. So, yeah, but, you know, augment, it's about a buff. Mm. And, and and I don't want to go deep dive into each of these but, but no. too much, but at high level, I mean, you got barrier. It's yep. about protection. Mm-hmm. Reducing damage. It's what it does. It reduces damage at a very basic level. Mm. I, mean, I mean, usually, unless you roll exceptionally well, if you activate that basic spell... You're going to basically basically have the effect of increasing your soak by one. <laughs> I mean, conjure is very interesting. It allows you to conjure something. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I, and honestly, that could be an object or a tool or even a creature. But it, it's very very limited and short term in terms of, of its capability. Mm. Um, and if you conjure a creature, it's a wild creature. You don't have control over it. It could attack you. Mm. Can I just mention something here about conjuring? It's something that comes up quite often on our boards and, and questions from, from listeners. Is the difference between conjure and barrier when it comes to things like wall of force, um, firewall, and things like that? Is that if you, uh, because obviously when people think barrier, they're automatically considering, oh, well, it's a barrier wall or something like that. No. Barrier is, as you said, Chris, it's a protection. Um, so, you know, it, it's more about personal buffs so that you can increase your defense, increase your, um, you know, your, your soak, as you mentioned before, as the basics. Conjure is when you're trying to create something that wasn't there in the first place. Yeah, I mean, and, and I can see where the confusion can come. But again, it comes down to you got to think about the effect. Mm. Okay, so. Uh, that uh, I'm just going to keep coming back to that because it solves yeah. every problem. Absolutely. Every one of these arguments gets solved when you think about the effect. Okay, what does barrier do? It provides protection against incoming damage. That's 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 its effect against a target. Okay. Mm-hmm. What does conjure do? It summons or creates something for for you to use. Basically, mm-hmm. now let's say um uh you know somebody says well you know what I want I want to I want to I want to raise a wall of stone 
like a, a perimeter wall, you know, like a trench wall, just a meter tall or half a meter tall. Mm-hmm. Okay. To, you know, for, for my, for my allies to duck behind against incoming arrow fire, mm-hmm. you know, and so would I be conjuring that wall? Um, I mean, y- y- that, that sounds sensible on face, but mm. as a GM, mm. you would say barrier. Yeah. It's a barrier. Why? Because what's the effect on the target? That's right. The target is my allies. And we'll get to this in the bit in a bit, but basically you're 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 creating a you're casting a barrier spell with additional targets. That's yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. Okay. But you what is the mechanical effect? You are you are making something that is going to provide cover or concealment protection to you and other allies. Therefore, mm. it is a a, a barrier a barrier spell. Mm. Um how it manifests, the flavor, the fluff, the description, that's where the narrative thing really comes into place. And, and that's why we say it's so broad. It's just barrier spells are used to protect. Whether I'm raising a retaining wall of earth from the ground, um, whether I'm using divine energy to put a glowing halo around my head and <laughs> make undead uh, shy away from me or, or shirk when they, when they hit me mm-hmm. or whether I'm going all classical wizard and creating a, a, a suit of mage armor around myself mm. made of pure force energy. Mm. These are all different narrative examples of one spell. But again, you've got to think about the effect it has on the target. Yep. And as you say, keep it simple, <laughs> keep it simple. I find barrier and conjure often get confused in that mm. regard. But again, think about the effect. Um, Again, thinking about the effect, we already talked about curse a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, curse is obviously hindering without harming. Mm-hmm. It's a debuff. Yeah, yeah, it's a it, it's a debuff. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. You are one. Like, great. It's a debuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, dispel is a very interesting one. Um, not only because it ha- it's and we'll come to this. Uh, it, it's only available to one particular skill. Mm-hmm. Um, or wait, no, well, and, and not except unless you're in Tyranoth. Uh, but but it has a base difficulty of hard, hmm. okay? And, and this comes down to that magic rule of thumb number two we talked about where we said a spell effect in a structured encounter should be limited, specific, and very basic in its effect and difficulty. Hmm. And I asked the question, what's the simplest effect the spell should achieve and how difficult so that should that simplest effect be? Hmm. When you are dispelling magic, that is from a thematic and literary fantasy perspective – a notoriously difficult thing to do. Okay. So the simplest form, the most basic form of that spell is going to be dispelling an active spell. And that's going to be a hard thing to do. So when, when we say basic, that doesn't necessarily mean it needs to be an easier average difficulty. It may be hard depending on the spell type, but Keep in mind that's going to just going to be a boss spell. That's mm. like it's like that's still the simplest or most basic version of what that spell could do. Mm. It's still going to be hard. Yeah. So yeah, come something to to definitely keep in mind there. It says the default difficulty. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it can be easier depending on the circumstances. So yeah. 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 Always, always, always with any of this stuff. What about heal? Ah, heal's pretty self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. It's used to heal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, very few people have, uh, have confusion around that one. <laughs> but the one that gets a lot of confusion though is, <laughs> is the last one, which is utility. Yeah. Utility is that spell that I, I love the idea of the utility spell. It's a great catch all spell in this system. Um, mm. uh, 
first of all, a utility can only ever have a difficulty of easy. Yeah. It can never have a difficulty of more than that. Furthermore, we talked before about how a spell always has a broad set of narrative uses and then a, a broad but but restricted or limited basic set of in-encounter uses. And the book actually breaks out to two sections in the chapter for the, for each of those things, mm. for each spell. Mm. Utility does not even have a structured encounter or in-combat use. No. It is purely narrative. Mm. All right. And utility is designed to do magical tricks, mm. things that don't necessarily have a mechanical benefit in combat or in a structured encounter, but, you know, are, are so random that you don't even necessarily want to classify them by their effect on a target. Mm. Uh, I mean, and w- I mean, w- what are some what are some classic examples of minor spells from other RPGs that might equate to this, to, to put it in perspective in players' minds? Prestidigitation is <laughs> always my favorite. Prestidigitation so. <laughs> Um, the most common utility spell my players cast mm-hmm. is light. Yes. Yeah. All right. And you, and you can say, well, isn't that, isn't that, uh, isn't that conjure? I mean, yeah, sure. I guess you're creating something that's fine, but it doesn't matter. I mean, it's still going to be an easy check at that point. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, any of mage hand is another one, uh, yeah. that, you know, mage just hand. pick up something to, to take it to somewhere else. Um, that's fairly small, like a, a book or a, a you know a gem that you've uh, been uh, trying to search in the dungeon for, you know that sort of thing. It's something which is your typical zero level spells, um, that uh, or even you know first level spells that can be used in a non combat way. That's yeah. probably the best way to describe it. And, and that's that's really what they that's really what they are. It, it's kind of there as a catch all. Mm. And so and that's honestly really all we're going to say about it. You, you don't really need to come back to utility too much. No, no. But I mean, but holy, is this is this making sense? I mean, as we're walking through these spell types, can we see how those first two rules of thumb apply and, and understanding what a spell is and how it's structured in this incredibly broad sense? Absolutely. So the things that you just have to remember, um, just to go over them again with our magic rule of thumb is a spell should cover a specific but a broad effect. So remember the word effect, because that's what you're looking for. Now, the second magic rule of thumb is that a spell effect in a structured encounter should be limited, specific, and very basic in effect and difficulty. So using these two rules of thumb, you should be able to quickly determine what effect it is that you're looking for, and then in turn be able to extrapolate which spell action it is that you need. Yes. Or creating your own spell action if you're making something new. Yeah, absolutely. Which is, is kind of how we're going to end this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so what powers these things, Chris? This is the next step. And we said we kind of tackled this sort of in reverse order. We start, we start with the effect first. Because once you get a, a player to understand how a spell is structured, how it works... And how that's so radically different from uh, every other RPG out there. <laughs> then you can move on to, okay, well, how do you cast a spell? Um, like anything else you do in Genesis, you do it with a skill check. Yep. And those are those specific skills uh, actually have a skill subtype um, that is called magic skills. Mm-hmm. Shocking enough. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, the, the, what? The, the core rules, they outline three magic skills, yes? Yes, that's correct. Um, so the the three skills... Now, all of this is going to be covered on page 70 of the core rules uh, for those who are following on at home, which is where they talk about the three different skills. 
So the three skills are Arcana, which is based on your intellect, Divine, which is based on your willpower, and Primal, which is based on your cunning. Now, each of these skills, um, uh, you know, they each have their own different flavor. So, uh, in summary, Arcana is, uh, you know, uh, the wizards or your book-learned casters with their ability to manipulate magics of the world um, or from beyond. Divine is where some type of deity or belief is involved. So, it's going to be your clerics, your priests, your holy warriors and the like. And then lastly, there is Primal, which represents your character's ability to tap into the, the natural world or even perhaps themselves. Now, this skill is what would be used for things like druids and rangers um, and to an extent even sorcerers uh, who are tapping in within that inner power to cast their spells. Yep. But the intent is that, that a character would only be using a single magic skill. Now, that's not a mandate, as we sort of mentioned before in the previous section, especially with uh, things like Templar uh, as a talent. And Realms of Terranos shows us that that concept in this circumstance is king because it, it introduces uh, another two magic skills, uh, which are unique to that particular setting. And that's Runes, which is based on intellect, and then Verse, which is present. So we can have our bards, which is really cool. Um, yes. So, and uh, but as you can see, each of these skills, uh, aside from Arcana and, and and runes, each of these skills uses a specific attribute, which adds to the theme of the skill. Now, could you design a uh, a magic skill that is based around agility? No, no, no. You can, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> That, that actually violates one of our rules of thumb, but right. we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, so, so yeah. So uh, these, are, as long as it's it's hitting a theme, that's what you're looking for. That's the key thing. And both of those skills are going to be tailored to that very specific character concept, as I mentioned before. So, um, and yeah, so that's going to lead us to magic rule of thumb number three. And what is that, Chris? Magic skills should usually fit a theme or a concept. Mm. All right. So, Huli, you 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 said it perfectly a moment ago, where you said, "Okay, Arcana, intel, Arcana with intellect, it's your mage, it's your wizard. Divine willpower, it's your cleric. You know, primal cunning, it's your druid. Okay, versus your bard. Mm. Um, runes is kind of an odd man out, but but a very important uh, archetype." or trope in the rune bound setting. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Um, in Terranoth. Mm -hmm. The point is though, when we talk about how a magic skill should fit with a theme or concept, this starts and ends with the characteristic associated with the magic skill, intellect, willpower, cunning presence. They each mean very different things and they key to, and th this is the key deciding factor for you. When you're thinking about the concept that a magic skill applies to, what other skills are going to be commonly used by that that concept or that trope, and what uh, characteristic do those skills likely key to or most commonly key to? So, Huli, if I'm a wizard, I'm a bookworm. Yeah, I I'm a knowledge monkey. Mm -hmm. It's about the power of my mind. Okay, therefore, my magic skill is also based on that, on intellect. Mm. Um, 
if I'm a priest uh, or, or a cleric and I have divine magic at my disposal, I mean, the things that matter to me are, are I mean, another common skill associated with that type of character is discipline. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, which is obviously willpower based. Mm-hmm. And then of course, primal, why is primal based on cunning? Because survival is based on cunning <laughs> <laughs> and obviously presence, no brainer for verse. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about the bardic trope. Um, and even, even in the Terranoth setting with runes and the rune master, they are bookworms the same way a wizard is. It's just mm-hmm. a different flavor of, of bookworming. Mm-hmm. Now, Huli, as I said a bit ago, <laughs> yes, <laughs> there is a subset of this rule of thumb. Right. Okay. Never assign a physical characteristic to a magic skill. Okay, so why <laughs> is that? <laughs> um, okay, first of all, this rule of thumb, I, I have playtested. Uh, I, I, oh, actually, when I did my Aegis setting, which was a reskin, I playtested early concepts with this. Mm-hmm. It failed so hard. The reason is because that brawn and dexterity are used for combat skills. Right. And spells are also commonly used in combat. So in other words, you're double dipping. You're doing double duty. It, it, it makes brawn and, and agility way too powerful. Mm. So that's that's why. Mm-hmm. That's that, that's why. I, I don't want to say – I mean I said never do it. I don't want to say never do it. I mean it could be reasonable in I guess a weird setting maybe. Mm. But as a best practice, don't do it. Just don't do it. Look, one of the, the reason why I asked this question, this is this is part of me uh, looking at the superpower side of things. Yeah. Is that um, uh, for my concept, when I was looking at doing the superhero system, is that I actually removed the skills completely from the equation. And instead, I made the skills the effects. So I've made the skill the... Um, the the spell actions. So if you've got someone who is, I'll use Johnny Storm as an example, that Johnny Storm is obviously very agility based because he's a bit of a flyer, he's acrobatic, um, you know, he's, uh, that's his thing. Um, that he's firing off laser blasts, um, not laser blasts, fire blasts um, all the time. So, I looked at, okay, so when you choose what it is that you're going to have for your um, uh, your power, that you can choose what attribute that actually gets attached to. But we're saying now, basically that's not necessarily the way to do it. Well, okay, no. You're talking about a reskin. That is true. <laughs> Different. W- w- wait for it. When I say wait for it, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Not even this episode. I'm talking about core magic. Right. Okay. And that's what these rules of thumb are for. They mm. are for core magic and also expanding those core magic. Right. Um, those are some odd scenarios. And, and we'll, we'll come to that. I found it to fail horribly when I did my Aegis setting, which was actually also a reskin. But in that setting, the heroes still have access to weaponry, mm. laser rifles, and and melee weapons, mm. right? Mm. Uh in, in 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 depending on the setting, that may not be the case. The reason that this is a a, a recommended subset for this rule of thumb mm. um, to avoid those physical characteristics is because 
characters have powerful combative abilities available to them through equipment mm. that is governed by skills that use those characteristics mm. for for w- when you're when you're dealing with reskins especially in very specific settings where you have a character option that they're they're not that that's not a, i mean and yes powerful weapons exist in in a, in a marvel superheroic setting for example sure. but they don't use them mm. Okay, you see the and they, and they yeah. never use them. Mm. That that's the difference. Yep. Okay, mm. so um, yeah, but but for for a future show, for a future show, <laughs> I'm jumping ahead. I apologize. <laughs> so yeah, magic rule of thumb number three, though, and the most important thing: magic skills should usually fit a theme or a concept, mm. and that comes down to having a special skill for that concept and an appropriate characteristic associated with it. Mm. So the the skills for spells, uh, mm. the reason why this uh, I think is important um, it, for people to understand how spells work before talking about skills is that each spell is cast by a specific magic skill or a few different magic skills. Now, once you know what the spell does, uh, think about the character concept and the associated magic skill that should and should not uh, be able to accomplish that spell effect in your setting and a game. Now, that's going to lead us to what, Chris? <laughs> magic rule of thumb number four. Mm. Magic skills should be assigned to spells based on theme or concept. Yep. And sometimes, really, this makes total sense. Mm. <clears throat> sometimes yep. you're going to have to put some thought into it. Mm. Does your skill represent a specific character concept? And if so... What can that magic user do and what can they not do? Mm. This concept normally be able to cast this spell. Mm. Now, this is something that we don't sort of see in a table. I think that this is something that that is really missing from uh, the core rules. But we certainly see it in Terranoth. Yeah. Is that they have a nice chart which says these are the skills that that you have and these are the... Uh, the the spell actions that you can take, and this is a yes or no whether you can do all of that, um, and that's a really handy table to have. But there are plenty of people, and I know that um, Scott Sumop uh, has done one that you can easily download as well, uh, and it's a really cool thing just to have on the side of your, of your GM screen or nearby, so that you can tell what's doing what. Um, but for for the argument, let's go through each of those um, with the the eight spells in the core rubble, and what uh, what skills can actually use them. Now, as we do this, mm. let's let's put the rule of thumb number four mm. into practice and talk about why these skills are associated with it from a from a reasonable perspective. But more importantly, why this why the skills that aren't associated with it are not associated with it. Mm. And I know that there's a sidebar that talks about this, um, and it's basically for balance more than anything else. Um, but we'll, we'll start off with attack. So attack, um, you can use that with Arcana, Divine, and Primal. Mm-hmm. And if you got tear enough, runes as well. Yeah. Um, so so basically, uh, let, let's talk about the core first. All three core magic skills can be used for attack. Hmm. And at least to me, that that makes sense. When when I think about uh, an arcane magic user, attack magic is something they can traditionally do. Mm. All right, magic missile, burning hands, all that. Mm. 
when I when I when I think about a divine user, they they also traditionally can use attack spells as well. Holy smite, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, flaming pillar, okay, uh, you know, things like that. Mm. Um, and and even primal magic has attack capability in it as well. Mm. Um, however, despite the fact that this is in the core setting, you know, if if my unique setting says, you know what divine casters they they that's not part of their magical capability mm. then i might not allow that mm. okay mm. um now verse is obviously absent huli yep and that's very thematic i mean i i mean i'm sure there's some out there somewhere in the glut of twelve thousand <laughs> discrete spells that exist for D, but traditionally speaking damaging magic is not something that a bard typically is known for. No, bards are typically known for buffing spells, so things that can enhance other people to do things. And that's explained in our next um, skill, which is Augment. Mm-hmm. And now Augment has Divine and Primal. Now, it yes. doesn't have Arcana. And this is something that a lot of people object to. Um, but yeah, because thinking D and D. That's right, exactly. Um, so, uh, and if you, if you really want to have that sort of look and feel, well, there are some talents to look at and go back to our previous discussion um, on things that you can add that you can fill in those gaps if that's what you want to do. Um, but augment is so uh, divine and primal, and as far as Terranoth, it's runes and verse. So both of them cover that um mm-hmm. so yeah very again it's very very thematic to be blessing people for example um or giving them um you know some sort of uh you know blessing is probably the best example of it well so i mean aug- augment is all about the buff right yeah, right and and obviously that's that's the classic ability of 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 in terms of the core skills uh of 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 divine magic mm. um Primal's an interesting choice, um, mostly because, I mean, well, well, just for mechanics purposes, you could apply an augment spell to another target. Um, you know, you target yourself typically with druidic magic, and the idea of transforming yourself into a more animalistic or bestial creature that has enhanced abilities is actually a staple of druidic or primal magic. So that makes total sense. Mm. Um, the lack of arcana. Um, in, in augment, I, I know it's been a sore point from a lot of people, but that's just because they're thinking of D and D where you have traditional D and D spells, you know, like bulls strength and owls wisdom and things like that, that, that are, are, are you know, that arcane casters can cast. Mm-hmm. Um, but Huli, you mentioned earlier from a balance perspective, arcana can't do everything. And this is another key point as well, mm-hmm. with the exception of, of maybe one or two things. And I think attack and utility are the prime examples of that. The exceptions that kind of prove the rule. Mm-hmm. No single skill should should typically be able to accomplish every spell type if you are running a setting where you have multiple magic skills or multiple magic archetypes running around. Mm. Um, if that's not the case, then obviously there, there are settings out there. I know we're going to interview uh, Guillaume in just a bit uh, to talk about uh, Inquisition. Mm. Uh, that setting only has one magic skill. Yeah. Uh, in terms of witchcraft. And so, yeah, obviously it can do everything. Yeah. Um, but, but, uh, but that's, that's its own thing. So, yeah. so yeah, I mean, you just got to have it kind of have that flavor with it. And, you know, your, 
you're not playing D&D. You are playing Genesis or Terranoth, okay, or whatever fantasy setting it is. Yep. And I mean, ultimately, uh, one of the, the things that is uh, probably a bit of the stickler, and I know that we'll talk about effects that you can add on uh, in a bit, but haste is one of the effects that you can add for augment. And so people yeah. automatically think haste, haste is in the, the spell. Well, that's a magic user thing. So magic user is clearly arcana. So, you know, why can't I add on haste? Again, how many times did you have to cast haste in a, in, in, in an encounter, how many times did you have to do that? Um, look, I would be suggesting you probably only need to do it once. And that's really about it. Well, why don't you go and take a, uh, you know, a, a, why don't you go and take Templar? That's probably the easiest way to explain it. So that you can gain access to Divine. You know, I've got a player in, in my Terranoth campaign who wants to be an Elementalist. He wants to be able to cover everything. And he asked me if he could swap around um, Augment and Barrier because, uh, you know, he had uh, Arcana and he wanted to swap those around to have it sort of like a unique skill. And the more I think about it, um, the more I think, well, just take, if you want to be a overall cover everything, look at taking those extra talents. You may be limited as to what you can uh, be casting. But look at those additional talents to uh, to add that uh, to cover up the gaps for one of them at a turn. A player cannot be you can't do everything. No, you just can't. And players love to want to do that. Yes, they do. And <laughs> if if you if if you really feel strongly about it, nab some talents. Um, make make some talents. Have your GM make some talents. Mm. Um, and 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 pay for them appropriately. But it's going to be limited. And the other thing, too, is in that instance, Uli, at that point, it, 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 he's not a divine caster. So even if he has access to divine, it's going to be a weak skill check for that mm. player. Mm. And, and, and what some players like that want is they want it all under Arcana, mm. where they have their three yellow, one green dice pool. Mm. And, and no, it's just it's imbalanced. It's not designed to work that way. Yep, exactly. Now, barrier is what we got next. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, Arcana and Divine, mm -hmm. which makes total sense mm -hmm. um, as protection magic is both a staple you know, of, of arcane and divine magic. And then, of course, runes if you're in Terranoth. Mm -hmm. um, now we come to the fun of Conjure. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, which uses what? Arcana and Primal. Mm. Now, Arcana as a skill makes total sense thematically because obviously uh, the ability to summon something out of thin air is, is, is classical arcane magic. Mm -hmm. But what about Primal? Why is Primal there? Well, Primal, I think, is for, you know, to, to bring about the, uh, you know, a, a familiar creature that, um, you know, forest friends, for want of a better uh, term, as I always uh, like to, uh, <laughs> to say about druids. Um, yeah. That uh, yeah. So uh, I mean, what's interesting is in if we're looking at D and D, D and D does cover, uh, you know, the the summon monster for all of the Arcana, Divine, and Primal. But again, it goes down to balance issues um, as to why we're not seeing Divine there. Yeah, and in a system like Dungeons and Dragons, where you have incredibly discrete spells. You can give an arcane caster or a divine caster or a primal caster access to all of these things, but you control the balance 
by saying, well, yeah, but but the arcane summon spell is very different from the divine summon spell, which is very different from the druidic summon spell. And and some are more powerful than others in certain circumstances. And that's how mm. you you you're limited to what you can summon. That's how they provide the balance. Yep. When you have this level of broad capability, you have to enforce that distinction and put that balance in place at a higher level. Mm. And that starts with simply what you have access to and what you don't. Mm. What about curse? So curse, we have arcana and divine from the core rules. And then we have both runes and verse from Terranoi. Um, now, obviously, they've missed out on primal, which I don't think is a bad thing at all. Um, you know, curses is is the the debuff for one of a better term. Uh, so yeah, again, it's it's done for game balance, um, but uh, yeah, thematically, it certainly um, fits the bill. I mean, and, and again, this comes down to those arguments and those holdovers from D&D. Well, <laughs> entangling vines from a druid. I mean, yeah, okay, I get it. From an effect standpoint, that very much is a curse. But it's not – the dru- druids aren't known as debuffers. That's not their thing. That's not their core thematic thing. Yeah, yeah. We said Dispel was the odd man out earlier, and it's certainly the odd man out here. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Dispel – I mean, it makes sense from the Terranoth perspective, but from the core perspective – Arcana. They're the masters of magic. They know how magic works from a scientific level, from a uh, from uh, you know a an enchanted level as well. So uh, it totally makes sense, as far as I'm concerned, to have dispel magic as only an arcane. Um, and verse makes sense to me as well because again, you. Uh, it's about having an understanding of magic and, and how people are controlling magic. Uh, so, uh, so yeah. The ability for bardic magic to counter other spells and other magics mm. is a classical bardic ability that goes back to the oldest iterations of fantasy role-playing. Yeah. So uh, it, that made total sense to mm. me. Absolutely. And then we've got the old heel. Um, and it's pretty obvious because there is not that I'm aware of, although, as you mentioned before, I'm sure that there would be some rule somewhere. Um, but uh, healing is not normally an arcana sort of thing at all. Uh, so uh, having it under divine and primal makes total sense. You know, your typical cleric and your typical um, druid all have healing ability. So um, definitely under there. Um, and verse totally makes sense as well. Yeah. And, and again, classically, those are all the abilities of bardic magic, druidic magic, and divine magic. Yeah. They're, they're, just, they're just there. And then, of course, we come to utility. And maybe we should start by talking about what magic skills can't be used with utility. <laughs> None of them. Um, they, they all can use utility. And it makes total sense why. Uh, you know, if you're using uh, magic to do really minor things, uh, as long as it's got a, a narrative flair to it that is going to suit whatever skill that you're using, it's totally fine. Um, you know, every every class, if we want to talk D&D, uh, every class has their ability to cast cantrips or zero-level spells. So, uh, so yeah, having that uh, under everyone can use utility, fine it's great it's balanced and it makes sense (laughs) 
The other thing we glean from this discussion, and if you do have access to Realms of Terranoth and you have access to that table, uh, it's table 218, Magic Skills and Actions that Huli was talking about um, earlier, um, which is on page 115, you'll notice something else from this conversation. We've been talking right now about how you should assign spells to assign skills to spells based on the spell effect and the theme. Also, from a balance standpoint, realize, and you can very clearly see it laid out in the table, that when you're doing this kind of assignment, and again, you have multiple magic skills in your setting, um, not every skill should be able to do everything. It's just a core balance uh, constraint. Arcane, divine, and and verse. If you have, if you're using Terranoth. Um, they can do all, uh, all of them have, they can do a bunch of stuff, but there's two spell actions each that they can't do. Um, for primal and runes, there's three spell actions that they just can't do. Mm. So if you're thinking about adding a new skill to the setting, especially, um, keep that in mind, mm. keep that in mind. There should, there, there's for balance perspective, there should be things it shouldn't be able to do from a spell standpoint. Mm. So what are our rules of thumbs when it comes to skills for spells? Rule of thumb number three, magic skills should usually fit a theme or concept. Mm-hmm. Rule of thumb number four, magic skills should be assigned to spells based on theme and concept. Absolutely. Okay, so now that we understand what spells are, um, how they work, how magic skills work, and how those skills are associated with spells, we can finally get onto the fun stuff. <laughs> So far, we have drilled into our listeners um, that in play and in design, you need to keep your spells broad and basic. Mm. You need to keep your skills fairly broad as well. Mm. But with such broad and basic usage, where does your flavor come from? What separates a fireball from a lightning bolt, even though they're both, quote unquote, just attack spells? (laughs) What lets you target two foes instead of one? Or extend the range of your spell from short to far across the battlefield. Mm. All of this is done through the delicious menu <laughs> of additional effects. Yeah. Where if if <clears throat> if generic or broad spells and skills are the heart of the magic system of Genesis, mm-hmm. the additional effects are the brain. Mm. They're, they're the brain and the hands. This is where you can, through your own creativity and choices, start really delineating things and making, quote unquote, specific spell effects that you really want to achieve. Hmm. Now, each spell has an associated table, as you mentioned, uh, of those each additional effects. Now, some options might appear for multiple spell types. Um, and some are going to be unique to that particular spell. Mm-hmm. So each additional effect is chosen by the spellcaster before they roll. So each effect uh, adds a certain power or it adds an extra effect or some other bonus to the basic spell effect. But each added additional effect also increases the spell's base difficulty. Uh, and no matter what, you can't increase a spell's difficulty beyond five purple die. There's something which is intrinsic to magic that, you know, you can add all these effects if you want, but the most you can go up to is five purple die, and that's it. Ever. Ever. And and this is where this is where th- this very strong specificity comes in, because when you look at the additional effects, as we said, we talk about, okay, we have incredibly broad spells mm. that provide a very basic effect, 
Okay. If you want to get more powerful or you want to get more specific, if you want it to be a fireball or a lightning bolt, or you want it to be a spray that attacks a bunch of people, or you want it to stretch across the battlefield, or you want it to do one of a, a dozen other potential special things that add this narrative uniqueness and mechanical uniqueness and really differentiate it. It's like this menu you can pull from <laughs> and you can, you know, you, you can go through and be like, okay, I'm going to do an attack spell and I'm going to add blast and fire. Okay. <laughs> and all of a sudden you have meteor swarm. Okay. Right. And, and that's, that's how you get there. Okay. Or, or, or burning hands. Okay. I, I want to add impact and lightning. Okay. Well, guess what? You got yourself thunderbolt. Okay. Mm -hmm. th there, there you go. You know, where where you're 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 adding these sort of menu options that give you this this nice mechanical boost to the power of the spell, but at the same time also give it this narrative flavor as well. Mm. And as you say, each one you you add adds more difficulty. Yeah. Uh, up to that max of five. And and I don't I, I, I we actually have them all listed out in the show notes, but I don't want to go. I don't want to spend time to go through every single one no, of these. But absolutely. you you guys you guys can read, and, and we have a ton of additional effects for attack. Um, and really, the only spell that doesn't have additional effects is utility. Hmm. And why can't its utility have additional effects? <laughs> because if it needs extra effects, it probably should be something else. <laughs> is what it boils down to. Precisely, and utility spells can't have a difficulty more uh, more difficult than a single purple die mm. of easy. Uh, so, I mean, you, you couldn't even add additional effects if there were. Mm. And one thing that I want to add here, as far as the, the difficulty goes, where it has the, it maxes out at five purple die, that kind of goes against the core rules. Now, the core rules say that if anything's, you know, it does have an impossible level of difficulty. Um, but the thing is, is that, that's uh, that's when you're talking about how hard something is. It's not talking about the dice itself because it still maxes out at five purple die. It's just yes. that if something is completely impossible to try, that you're going to have to be spending a story point to do that at the same time. Can you do that with um, magic effects? No. no. No, you can't. It's as simple as that. Not per the core rules. Listen, if, if, if a player wanted to spend a story point and suggested it, I mean, I'd probably say yes. Mm. Depends but, on how descriptive they are. <laughs> but, but the point is, it's not rules as written. No, that's right. Exactly right. Now, if you've got a spell, though, that you want to, and this is something that we'll, we'll cover much, much later on, because there are other things that you can do to your character to enable you to add other effects for free, um, is if you're sort of saying, well, you know, I want to have fire and unholy and... I want to have, uh, you know, the, the, I want to be able to cast it at a, a huge range increment, uh, but I also want it to be empowered. That's, you can't do that. However, there are certain talents that allow you to reduce the difficulty. And that's something that you can look at for your character as well, such as Signature Spell, which is from Terranoff, um, and, uh, and other similar talents that allow you to add certain effects. But we'll get onto that at a later stage as well. Well, honestly, Huli, it's a perfect segue into our next rule, magical rule of thumb, mm. because, because what you just described is a, a beautiful and my favorite part about this entire system and additional effects. Mm. And, and that is magical rule of thumb number five. Mm. Additional effects should force a player choice. Yeah. The coolest part about additional effects is they let you really get granular with a spell, craft it, 
hone it to a precise and very specific set of not just mechanical, but narrative effects. Mm. But these, those additional effects should be costed with increased difficulty mm-hmm. to a, where players don't get to have it all. Mm. They really need to choose what effects to apply based on the scenario. Mm. And that level of, of critical thinking and on-the-fly mix and matching, especially for an experienced magic-using player character, mm-hmm. is the true fun of this system. Mm. You know, in, in each scenario coming up, oh, gosh, what, what can I add? What should I add? Oh, man, can I make that? Okay, is it going to be too difficult? <laughs> oh, gosh, do I, do I want to risk the extra threat if I, even if I succeed? I mean, I mean that's the... And that's that's the heart of the narrative dice pool creation, really, hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, as I mentioned before, if you've got new players that are not as familiar with this setting, find a piece of paper or go to the Foundry and uh, download the spell cards that um, Civil Wing Studios have done. And it's great because you can basically set up ahead of schedule all of the spells that you want to use, especially for beginner players that, and even beginner GMs, you know, um, if you look at a lot of the NPCs that we see in, uh, in realms of Terranoth, uh, that have magic in their, their stat block, you'll notice that it will just have one or two spells that they can use, but it clearly says that this isn't the only thing that they can do, but it just makes it a little bit easier and it gives it a little bit of flavor as well. Um, to cast those particular spells. See, and it's interesting to me. It's like, like I, I find that the that spell cards where you, you basically you come up with a recipe. You, it's, it's like writing down a recipe. Yeah. Okay. Yep. If you know experienced players who are very experienced with the magic system, they may use them as reference. Mm-hmm. But after a few sessions, they typically don't need them. No. They, they they get it. They understand and they they relish it. The biggest benefit for those spell cards regularly being used is to back to your point for the GM. Yeah. Because. Yeah. Let me tell you, that mental, fun chess game, which is great when you're a player, <laughs> can be a real pain in the keister for a GM running magical throw. I've got, I'm sorry, I got too much to think about here. Yeah, okay, absolutely. But ahead, of, but ahead of time, if I can write down three spell recipes that have the additional effects I want added in, mm. and there's the difficulty for me right there, and I know what the additional effects provide, and and this and that, and I can just reference that with a glance that's great. I'm at the point now that every magical threat I throw at a, at a, at a party, I've got spell cards for that threat mm. with the stat block. And that's just smart GMing, really. Yeah. It just, it just helps me out that much. Mm. So yeah, that's, but th- that's the thing when it comes to players, additional effects should force a player choice. Mm. Magical rule of thumb number five. So most players and designers are also going to gloss over very, very specific uh, and, and a cool point with additional effects. And that skill, that skill selection does matter. And it's not just for magic skills either. You know, first of all, there's what we've referred to in the past episodes as secondary skills for a spell's additional effect table. Now, this is common and a good thing with many additional effects having their benefit be equal to the caster's ranks in a different skill. Again, it slows down the progression a little bit, and it means that they have to, you know, divert their their XP expenditure so that, um, you know, they're not just getting uber powerful um, just under the one skill. Mm-hmm. So, for for the spells and the core rules, um, this uh, secondary skill is knowledge. 
Now, it applies to the eight of the 14 additional effects for, you know, attack, uh, where you've got blast, deadly, fire, impact, uh, lightning, destructive, and poisonous. Under divine health uh, and uh, primal fury for augment, uh, add, adds defense for barrier and uh, despair for uh, under curse. Now, for four uh, different spells uh, and 12 different additional effects, the same secondary skill is used. Now, consider that for a minute and remember it because it leads us into our next rule of thumb, which is... Magical rule of thumb number six. The secondary skill for additional effects should be simple and thematic. Hmm. So, as you said, for magic... In core rules, knowledge is is a natural secondary skill. Okay, it makes sense. All right, and obviously, depending on the setting, you're not going to have knowledge. You're going to break it out to the appropriate sub knowledge skill. Yep. Okay, like Terranoth uses lore. Mm. Okay. Um. Now, I can tell you all from very hard learned lessons that Huli, you actually helped me with when you were doing some of my early play testing. Yep. The folly of trying to get cute. As a designer, by using different secondary skills for different additional effects or across different spells. Okay. Um, you know, oh my gosh, I've got a barrier ability here. It's it's a protective. Uh ooh, I'm gonna I'm gonna have the secondary skill be vigilance because that's thematic and it makes sense. Okay. Um and but over here. Oh gosh, for this one, it, it's discipline. I'm going to use discipline because that makes sense. It, it it just it doesn't work. It spreads because Huli, you brought up a point earlier that having the secondary skill adds an, a little bit of a balancing extra XP burden mm. on the character. Mm. But when you start making it radically different skills for different additional effects, mm. it makes that burden too great. Mm. Um, worst worst case scenario. Um, if you're designing your own spells, keep the secondary skill the same across any spells that use the same magic skill to cast them. Hmm. Okay. So in other words, if you have, uh, you know, a bunch of spells that use arcana, then they should all have a, a secondary skill that is the same for their additional effects hmm. or all the spells for divine or, or so on and so forth. Best case scenario, you should typically do what the core rules do and keep all magic to a single secondary skill that is the same, mm. but if, if it fits with your setting and your theme, um, and it's thematic. Mm. But again, as you say, you've just got to keep it really simple because if you start spreading those out all over the place, yeah, you're going to create confusion and sure. It might be, as you said before, Chris, it might be cute and sure. It might be the most thematic thing you can possibly think about. But if it's going to create confusion at the table, it's going to slow down your game and people are just going to get frustrated. And that's not what you want to do. Yeah. And it also goes without saying, I think that the secondary skill should usually be a passive skill Mm. uh, or a rarely used one, as now you're giving a a rarely used skill some use, which is why (laughs) um, knowledge is great, uh, discipline is great, Mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. And it also goes without saying it should that the secondary skill should never, ever, 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 ever be another magic skill or a combat skill. Correct. <laughs> but secondary skills aren't the only way uh, that skills matter to additional effects. 
Now, some additional effects can only be added when the spell is being cast with a certain skill. Right. In the core rules, attack is a great example of this. Uh, The manipulative effect can only be added if using the arcana skill. And this uh, this is something which is really unique to each of these. Um, you know, non-lethal can only be added with when you're using primal. Um, and then when you look at uh, the divine, holy, unholy can only be added with that particular skill. Yeah. And also, I mean, outside of attack, augment, barrier, and curse, they also, all, all, all four of them, uh, and plus attack, um, have skill-specific additional effects. Mm. And that's a great way to define your, as you mentioned before, it's your menu of additional effects. Uh, even further, and to really narrow them down to a specific theme or skill. Now, this leads us to magic rule number seven, which is use skill-based additional effects based on concept and theme. Additional effects use mechanics to define flavor. What makes a barrier, you know, what 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 makes a barrier protection spell narratively? a shield of magical force versus a divine halo that makes evil creatures recoil from you. (laughs) Whether you apply Mm -hmm. reflection Mm -hmm. using arcana Mm -hmm. or sanctuary using divine. That's how that's that that's it's mechanics, but it's also flavor. Mm. So, so when you like, when you're designing, like ask yourself how specific flavors and effects that you're adding can or can't, be accomplished by thir- certain thematic character concepts. Mm. The you know like 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 sanctuary divine is like I mean it's it, it's 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 like I think there's even a spell in Dungeons and Dragons called like like sanctuary yep, there right is, yeah which is and it, it, it's very like you know it's like oh cleric oh <laughs> I mean I mean yeah that should only be available to divine casters but hey barrier is available to multiple caster types mm. so this is the way you can again additional effects are about taking that broad spell and reducing it and specifying it. And now you're making it discreet. It's certainly narrowing the focus. And that's, as I mentioned before, and that's what you want to do is you, mm-hmm. if you want to make uh, divine more divine, if that makes any sense, is that that's where you want to be adding these additional effects. Now, something else as well that you can do, and we may get onto this, is that, there is not because of, of the way that Genesis is, that it is a uh, it's a framework. You can add additional effects into your magic skills. Absolutely, but if you if you're only just starting, probably stick with the basics. Um, but there are certainly ways that um, I've seen done in, in games where people have borrowed effects from uh, other magic actions. In a uh, like, um, you know, some uh, one from augment to basically use into a magic attack. It's not something that I would recommend, but I've seen it done. And normally, what they do is they just increase the difficulty another level. Again, it goes down to the old adage, um, especially with this system, is that anything is possible, but there could be a consequence. Yeah, there's always a consequence or an increased difficulty, and. And it goes without saying, when you guys are going to modify the core rules like that, make sure you're incredibly experienced with them before you attempt it. Absolutely. All right, so let's summarize magical actions. Now you guys understand how spells work. Mm. Huzzah. (laughs) 
hopefully the magical rules of thumb we've gone over to this point have helped you define the underlying tactics and peeled apart mechanics that you can use when creating new spells and magical skills in a balanced way. But, Huli, there's a couple key things that you still need to talk about. Because one of them is actually utterly critical to spell construction and design. And we kind of held off talking about it until now. Mm. And these are magic maneuvers. Now, there are two magic maneuvers in the game. And that's concentrate and counterspell. Now, concentrates, uh, it's the one that gets probably used the most, um, yeah. which is the ability to be able to maintain a spell. Now, unlike other uh, systems uh, that, uh, you know, you cast it and it lasts for a certain number of rounds, normally minutes or hours or whatever else, that's not how this system works. So if you're going to augment someone, it is something that you have to concentrate on. Now, it does stay until, and this is something that you can play around a little bit, and I've seen done successfully, uh, in an encounter, where you'll have the uh, the person who's casting Augment, they'll do it at the start of the round, and then it remains in effect until the end of the spellcaster's next turn. So that means that you cast it at the start of round one, and at the end of round two, that's when the uh, the mage or whoever it is that, that's doing the, the augment, that's when uh, they go and take their next uh, action because you're, you're allowing that spell to last for two rounds. Basically. And if it targets another character especially, they yeah. get two rounds worth of benefit without you actually having to concentrate. That's right. So what concentrate is, um, as I said, some of them have, uh, you know, instant effects. And that's going to be things like your your attack where it's just, you know, point, shoot, what you would typically do, typically do with uh, a firearm or, or something like that. Heal. Heal is another one. Absolutely. Um, but others can be concentrated on to let their effects linger. And the way that you do that is that you spend a maneuver. Uh, so of the core eight spells, Augment, Barrier, Conjure, and Curse can all be uh, used with Concentration. Um, their, their base effect ends after the end of the caster's next turn, as I explained. But with the Concentrate Maneuver, it extends it to the end of the following turn. And you can do this effectively endlessly. And what's yeah. really interesting is that it does not cost you too strain to concentrate each round. That's a really important point. So, yeah. in effect, you can have two spells running at the same time without actually spending any strain. But it means that your spellcaster is going to be pretty much stuck in the one spot because they won't have any maneuvers to use to move from one point to the next. And when you're a spellcaster and you don't necessarily have all the wounds in the world... Maybe not necessarily a really good plan. Hey, man, I've seen it happen uh, <laughs> where you've got you've got the, the 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 divine caster, and he's standing in the middle of the battlefield with two hands outstretched, maintaining augments <laughs> on two completely different characters. You know, and the the meat shield's like just 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 keep keep. I need the green. I need the green. <laughs> All right, and I mean, oh gosh, yeah, I've seen it happen. It's like, all right, but I'm only doing it for one more round. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, as I said, basically what this means, you can't spend uh, a maneuver each round. To, uh, sorry, you can 
um, spend a maneuver each round to keep one of those spells going round after round after round. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it does mean that your magic user is going to be slowed down quite substantially because that one maneuver that, uh, that they would normally be using to move around the battlefield or whatever else, um, is going to be chewed up doing a concentration. Now they can move, but normally they're only going to be moving uh, with with one maneuver. But that's going to cost them strain, especially if they're doing you know casting other spells or 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 something else. So that's another thing as well, because again, it's costing too strain to move if they're doing other spells as well, and that's that's the lifeblood of of a spellcaster is their strain. So you've. It really is when it comes to magic. It is really a, a like a resource balancing game that you're playing to to know where your strain is. And I tell you what, as a GM, the best thing that you can do is throw something at them that's going to cause them um, strain. You know, whether it be threats or, or whatever else. Obviously, don't over abuse it. But geez, it has an effect when suddenly you know they've they've done something or they've had some sort of effect cast on them or whatever that causes them strain, they have a flip out. It's, <laughs> it's amazing to yeah. watch. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Now, with Counterspell and the fact that you have, or excuse me, with Concentrate and, and the fact that you have this, this is the, also the last component of spell design. Mm. Okay. And when you're, when you're going to cr- be creating a spell, you've got to ask yourself, can this spell be concentrated on? Is this an instant, like that, that again, going back to that effect, mm. is this effect instantaneous is it one? Does it does it happen and it's done, mm. or is it something that can linger through concerted action on behalf on, on the part of the character? Mm. And this leads us to our last magical rule of thumb for this episode. Mm. Magical rule of thumb number eight: If you can't decide if a spell should allow for concentration, then split it into two spells. Mm. Like, look, like we said, keep your spells broad. Yep. But if you have a spell that has effects that could be instantaneous or could be extended over rounds, then you're too broad. <laughs> <laughs> it's that, at that point, it's time to split up the spell. Yep. So, and that kind of brings us into Counterspell, um, which uh, the state that you're doing that maneuver and, and an opponent's within medium range, um, you know, it upgrades the difficulty of any spells that they cast once until the end of your next turn. So you're kind of just making it harder for people to cast spells. And it's only manoeuvre. And it's something that if you're not doing it and you've, you've, uh, you, know, you've, you find that at the end of a round you've got a manoeuvre spare, just do it anyway. Because it's going to make casting spells harder. Now, I know we'll get into this much later on, perhaps in the next episode, where we, where we start talking about what happens if they roll a despair. Yeah. That, <laughs> that becomes a scary thing. Um, so if you've got somebody doing that, you can almost guarantee it's going to make you a target. That is probably the only downside to doing that. So, um, you know, but it's certainly going to prevent other characters in the party from being attacked by the, the evil wizard. Um, so yeah, just spend that maneuver to counterspell. It's a, it's a good use of, of, of that particular maneuver. Everyone forgets about counterspell. Mm. 
I mean, I, I know it's situational, but yep. it's so valuable when you're fighting a magic user. Counterspell, counterspell is like the magical equivalent of aim. Mm. It, it's 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 incredibly useful when you've got a spare maneuver and everybody forgets to do it. Mm. Well, it's better than aim because it's it means that they're upgrading the difficulty once. Yeah, I know. It's, it's like an inverse <laughs> aim. I I know. Um, so so yeah, but 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 counterspell absolutely fantastic. Mm. Absolutely fantastic. Absolutely. So, Chris, should we go over each of uh, our, just briefly in summary, should we go over each of our magic rules of thumb? Because I think that, that each of these are really important, and they're, especially for people who are going to listen to our next segment, which um, you know is well, the next part of this segment, uh, where we're going to um, design uh, a, a magic action. Um, that, uh, that, yeah, should we go through each of those? Yeah, let's do it back and forth. We said we'd, we said we'd summarize, so let's summarize. Let's do it. So our magic rule of thumb, number one, is a spell should cover a specific but broad effect. Magic rule of thumb number two. Mm. A, a spell effect in a structured encounter should be limited, specific, and very basic in its effect and difficulty. Indeed. And magic rule number three. Uh, again, we're going to be putting this on uh, download that we'll talk about later on. Um, but magic rule, uh, magic rule of thumb number three is magic skills should usually fit a theme or a concept. Number four, magic skills should be assigned to spells based should be assigned to spells based on theme and concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have magic rule of thumb number five, which additional effects should force a player to make a choice. Number six, the secondary skill for additional effects should be simple and thematic. Number seven is use skill-based additional effects based on concept and theme, which is a bit of a, a running concept and theme, really, is <laughs> to, to focus on concept and theme. And lastly, number eight if you can't decide if a spell should allow concentration, then split it into two spells. Mm. So hopefully, if you follow that rule of those uh, eight rules of thumb, you should be able to do what we're about to do next. Custom spell creation. <laughs> so we are going to create a brand new spell right here on the show using the existing magic system. Yep. And I kind of, I kind of, this, this was kind of my, my brainchild. For me, this was important. It filled a gap I wanted filled. Yep. So that's fair enough to. So what is it, Chris? Tell us. Well, okay. So the gap uh, in, in the current spell list, um, there, there's a few. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and as we know, the Expanded Players Guide is going to fill some of them. Mm-hmm. But one of the gaps for me is a, a classic of arcane magic, at least for D&D, us D&D grognards. Mm-hmm. And that would be telekinesis. Mm. I'm, I'm talking about the so you mentioned mage hand earlier but that's mm. a very small utility effect yep. i'm talking about the ability to magically move massive objects with your mind mm. moving x-wings for example <laughs> <laughs> yes um <clears throat> and you know I, I i love telekinesis i think it's a very versatile power i think it can do a lot of cool things yep um and it really, it really kind of has an interesting uh, effect on a target, mm. one that no other spell has, which is, again, coming back to the effect, 
m- moving a target. <laughs> <laughs> now, physically moving it. Yeah. Now, as per our, all of the other skills, we, we have to look at the narrative use and the structured use. So let's look at the narrative use first. So yeah. take us through that part. Okay. So for telekinesis, um, when, when you look at the other examples in the books, we have this narrative use where it lists the power, or excuse me, the, the, the spell, mm-hmm. and it lists the skill associated with it, yep. and then they tell you narratively what you can do with it, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, for me, at least right now, I mean, the only magic skill I would allow to be used with this would be Arcana. Mm-hmm. That's just because, at least thematically, primal magic, divine magic, and even in Terranoth, runic and verse magic mm-hmm. – um, are, none of them have ever been associated with telekinetic power. No. Um, so, so for right now, I'm going to keep it simple. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm going to keep the skill as arcana. Okay. And, and for my narrative use, I mean, kind of encapsulating what I said before, telekinesis allows you to move something or someone from one place to a different place with mental thoughts, uh, clearing away rubble from a damaged building. Tearing open a stuck door, picking up a person and holding them aloft, or or pushing a foe across the battlefield. Mm. Um, and I would also, in the narrative view section, I would, as there is a common thing, I would recommend that the the GM and players reference uh, the 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 telekinesis rules for the structured encounter section um, to determine how difficult. Uh, such narrative uses would be because as we'll get to in a bit with the structured encounter use, you've got very specific set difficulties based on silhouette size, which is really the the key major thing here for telekinesis in my opinion. So that's really a, a sort of a broad sort of spectrum as to what telekinesis can do narratively. So it's explaining exactly what it can do in, in pretty simple terms. Um, and so, yeah, it, it totally makes sense. And, and I love the fact that it's, it's arcana only. So what about the structured encounter though? All right. Now this is where we get to the nitty gritty Mm. and applying our rules of thumb. I need to come up with the most basic version of this effect that I can. Mm. All right. Mm -hmm. Um, which is, is moving something from one place to another. Mm. That's the effect Mm -hmm. movement of a target. All right. Mm Mm-hmm whether it's a creature or an object. Um, now, obviously, Arcana is the skill that's being used. I ask myself, is this something that I want it to be concentrated on? Hmm. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> uh, um, this, this is not an instantaneous effect. I mean, it certainly could be. I could, I could just you know, for lack of a better term, force slam somebody across a battlefield yep. and then just be done, and just be done with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I want the ability to hold them aloft or levitate something for over a period of time. Yeah, I definitely, I want, I want to allow concentration. Mm. Um, now I toyed with this for a while and thought about the, the most basic effect I could achieve. And I thought about limiting it to a silhouette zero object, but I decided against that. Okay. Because to me, that is very much you, – you, you actually pointed it out earlier in this episode with an example of a great utility spell. Mm. And that's Mage Hand. Mm. All right. There's no real benefit to being able to push a, zil, a silhouette zero object around. Mm. Not really. 
Nothing, nothing that should be more difficult than a utility spell, to be perfectly honest. Mm. So based on that, what I've got right now is the, the basic effect is your character selects one target, a creature or an object, up to silhouette one in size mm-hmm. within short range. Take a cue from attack. Mm-hmm. Then makes an arcana skill check. Now, the default difficulty of the check, I think this should be a little harder than an attack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for me, the default difficulty of the check is going to be average, two purple dice. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I do want to call out in this um, that affects targeting, uh, ch- checks targeting non-minor NPCs, like per the GM's discretion, sh- you know, should be opposed mm-hmm. checks, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially if I'm, if I'm, if I'm wanting to, to lift someone aloft and, you know, that could be opposed by, by discipline typically is what you often oppose with. Mm-hmm. Um, although honestly, I think athletics coordination, I mean, even vigilance might make sense under the circumstances, mm. uh, where someone's getting out of the way of my effect or, or, or reacting before I can, I can use it. Or, um, in the case of athletics or coordination, uh, you know, jumping out of the way or simply a hold, holding fast against my mental force, if that makes sense. Mm. I know that uh, one that typically gets used in in the Star Wars sense more than anything um, is ripping the uh, you know a weapon out of somebody's hand. That's a great example of where I'm targeting an object mm-hmm. that would totally be an opposed check. Yep. Even though I'm targeting an object, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, makes makes total total sense. Mm. Now, if the check check is successful, again, my most basic usage the target would immediately be moved one range band in a direction of my character's choosing. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, before making the power check, um, I can choose any number of additional effects listed on the telekinesis additional effects table, <laughs> and these effects would be added to the check. So what are those additional effects then, Chris? Ah, so this is where I had some fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't want this to be as comprehensive as attack, um, where, you know, you've got like, you know, what, what 12 or so additional effects to choose from. Yeah. Um, I, I kept it fairly simple mm-hmm. um, uh, at, at, uh, at four additional effect options. Mm-hmm. Now, I knew that one of them needed to be range, right? right. Because obviously the, the power works at short range or less, but you want to be able to go beyond that or the, the spell, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, additionally, I, I wanted to have the ability to really pump it up with the additional target additional effect so that I could apply this to multiple targets at one time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so interestingly enough, I had both those effects. They exist already in the core rules. So I was just able to bring them over. Right. Um, so range, obviously increase the range of the, of the spell by one range band. Uh, and that can be added multiple times, mm-hmm. uh, increasing the range by one range band each time. And each time you do it, it adds, you know, plus, plus one difficulty. Mm. Um, additional target, uh, again, already there in the core rules, uh, the spell affects one additional target within range of the spell. Um, and in addition, after casting, you can spend uh, one advantage to affect one additional target within range of the spell. Mm-hmm. And you can trigger that multiple times, spending advantage each time. Mm-hmm. But that's a that's a, a heavier difficulty. Um, an additional target applies to lots of different spells, um, but that's a, that's a plus two to the difficulty mm-hmm. on that. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to couple up with a couple unique additional effects. Mm-hmm. Um. And the obvious one for me, uh, considering the thematic uh, approach to this, was the idea that I may want to lift something huge. <laughs> right? right? Silhouette one, maybe not necessarily enough. So I have a new effect called force. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
your character can target a creature or an object one silhouette size larger than normal. This may be added multiple times, increasing the target silhouette by one each time. Mm. So that means I can turn this into a hard check and, 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 and lift a silhouette two object. Um, I can turn this into a four purple check and lift a silhouette three object. And if I wanted to max this out at five dice, <laughs> purple dice, and 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 lift a silhouette four object at short range. Mm-hmm. I could attempt that. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I can see a talent or two coming into play. Essentially, <laughs> um, and the last effect I created is again going back to to thematics. One of the things with uh, and this is another cool thing you can do with additional effects, mm. and we we see this in in some of the other uh, core abilities. Um, a great example I love is Primal Fury, which is a, a, a primal additional effect you can add to augment that basically increases your unarmed damage, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it's the idea of, of you know, you have these discrete spell effects, but you can beg, borrow, and steal through the use of additional effects, okay? To kind of, to kind of do double duty and allow uh, uh, one spell to kind of play in multiple spaces. This is also a great way to handle things like, you know, if you say, well, I want to, I want to um, apply, uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm still stuck in D and D land, so I want to create a, a wall of fire. So I want it to be a barrier, but I also want it to burn anyone who touches it, right? <laughs> right. Um, so it sounds like what you've got is a a new additional effect you need to be adding for your barrier spells, creating and adding. Mm. So when it comes to telekinesis, um, I, I kind of borrowed a page from Curse on this one mm-hmm. uh, to a degree. Um, telekinesis is often used to hinder people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, locking someone down, preventing them from moving or making, or making their reactions or actions very sluggish. Um, so I have uh, my last additional effect is called hindered. Uh, the target suffers one setback die on any skill checks they make until the start of your next turn, until the start of your next turn. Mm. In addition, after casting the spell, you may spend two advantage to force the target to suffer another setback die and may trigger this multiple times, spending two advantage each time. Nice. Um, I, I wanted this, th- this has the potential to be very devastating. Mm. Um, and, and so uh, basically, and I've, I've play tested similar things to this. <laughs> Um, uh, be, it has the potential to be very devastating when you start stacking setback dice like that. Mm-hmm. So I ameliorated that by basically saying, okay, if you want to stack multiple setback dice, it's going to cost you two advantage. Yep. And that effect doesn't last until the end of your next turn. It lasts until the start of your next turn. Mm. In exchange for that, I was able to bring, uh, justify bringing this difficulty down to a plus one difficulty. Mm. Which is where it is. Because I kind of wanted it to be a plus one. I wanted it to be a cool FU that somebody could add to the basic telekinesis power if they're using it against somebody. Yep. Where it's like, oh, great, I pushed them across the battlefield. Oh, well. Well, you know what? Upgrade your difficulty or increase your difficulty by one. And you can also throw a setback die on the target. Mm. Okay. Okay. Wow. That's worth it. Absolutely. Okay? And, if, and if you're wanting to hold them in play more permanently or place more permanently, obviously you can concentrate. So exactly. you can be using that maneuver to maintain that spell and maintain that number of setback dives. So, yeah, that's, that's great. Now, a question that I have, though, 
And this is something that I'm sure that people will, you know, if they, if they want to use it in their own games, that um, perhaps that they might want to, you know, emulate um, the move power that we see in Star Wars. So how do you do an attack with telekinesis? I think I know the answer to this, but I'll ask you anyway. Uh, again, uh, it's you don't use telekinesis to make an attack. Right. And th- this, this is the fundamental disparity people have. Hmm. They, can't, they, can't, they, they, they can't separate this out in their mind. Hmm. They're, they're treating it too discreet. Well, no, I want to attack him by throwing a rock at him with telekinesis. So it's telekinesis spell. No. <laughs> what's, what's, the, what's the effect? Hmm. It's an attack spell. That's what you're doing. If you're describing it as you telekinetically lift up a rock and hurl it at him, that's how you describe the attack spell. Yep. All right? uh, Again, it's separating the description of the spell from the effect it's trying to achieve. Mm. People can't seem to get their heads around that. And if you can, and you just think about effect first – I swear it solves 90% of the confusion and problems people have. Definitely. So, now that's really cool. Um, and how are people going to find this, Chris? If they want to look at it without just listening to us. Oh, what about going to ForgeGenesis.com, of course? <laughs> <laughs> In the resources section. The same uh, episode file where you guys found the uh, talents we created earlier. You'll find this new spell, Telekinesis. Get it on the table. Mm, Play tested. Let's yeah. know what you think. Yeah, and let's uh, yeah definitely come back to us with uh, with anything that you can suggest, or perhaps even uh, some spells or spell effects that uh, you've created for your own in house gaming. Now that's kind of just step one, though, Chris, isn't it? <laughs> Man, we have only scratched the surface when it comes to our magical discussions, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is daunting considering how long this episode is. <laughs> Um, oh, my Lord, my Lord. Th- this was the first step in our journey through the magic system in Genesis. But Gamer Nation, listen, in future episodes, we will be diving into magic implements, something we haven't even talked about yet, mm-hmm. what they are, how they work, and most importantly, how you can craft new ones. Yep. We will be diving into specifically, we will probably have an entire episode devoted to using advantage, triumph, threat, and despair on magic checks. Mm-hmm how these special rules work, and most importantly, how you can best use them and modify them in your games and in your custom products. We will also have one or more episodes devoted to, now that we have set this foundational framework, reskinning the entire magic system. Mm. Using the bones of this incredibly flexible system and filing the serial numbers off to make something brand spanking new that is a topic i'm so looking forward to discussing that's for (laughs) sure well we're gonna get a head start on it huli because we are about to talk to uh somebody i can't wait to talk to Mm. uh guillaume tardif Mm -hmm. uh uh bill to to his friends (laughs) uh who who is the author of the inquisition setting Mm. and he uh it kind of did a mixed bag. He created, as we'll get to in his setting, something very unique for magic, 
where he, uh, he he didn't file the serial numbers off so much as, uh, uh, you know, dunk them in a cursed blood uh, and surround them with voodoo dolls and uh, bits of hair and clothing. He totally uh, reforged them, so to speak. <laughs> so uh, maybe we should, uh, I don't know, go talk to Guillaume. Absolutely. And he sounds like somebody who has broken the mold. Breaking the mold. The Genesis Foundry is an exciting community of fan-created content for Genesis. New settings, new rules options, adventure and campaign modules, and much, much more. But some creators go above and beyond, subverting our expectations and breaking the mold with their work. Our Breaking the Mold segment is dedicated to showcasing an exciting offering available right now in the Genesis Foundry as we separate the pure ally from the slag and point you to the best content which is out there. Indeed. Now, tonight's guest is a newcomer to the industry, with his offering on the Foundry being the first of his experiences in the game authoring realm. And what an experience it's been. He is one of several hosts on D20 Radio's own Don't Despair podcast. He is an active member and moderator on several of the Genesis community social media groups. Hailing from the wintry wilds of Montreal, Canada, the Forge podcast is happy to welcome to the show for the very first time, author of the Inquisition Genesis setting, it's Guillaume Tardif. Guillaume, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, guys. <laughs> now, for those of us uh, uh, uncultured swine and heathens uh, <laughs> who, have no, who have no grasp of the French language, um, and I, 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 I have no doubt your name is butchered quite frequently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, several times by me before the show, but anyway, <laughs> that's all good. <laughs> Um, but I, I do understand for, for us English speakers, a lot of your friends do call you Bill or Will. Yeah, exactly. So we, we, we may just do that. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, we might. I think that's better. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So to start us off, so um, Bill, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your gaming career? All right. So uh, I've been playing role-playing games since a while now. I started with... The uh, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, it was about like 25 years ago uh, in late primary school. Uh, I mostly uh, been the GM my whole gaming life. Like there was no one else wanted to 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 attempt DMA a game. Mm. So I played mostly Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, switched to 3.5, then switched to Pathfinder. So I never tried 4th edition or 5th edition. Mm-hmm. And um, I also checked the rules for Legend of the Five Rings, Vampire the Masquerade, and GURPS, but never actually played any game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I switched to Star Wars from Fantasy Flight Games, and then I'm here with Genesis. And that has to be my favorite game of all time. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, there's no way I'm going back to the rule-heavy crunch of Pathfinder. Like, mm. there is no way at all. Yeah. 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 You know, there, there's times I might get an urge, you know, uh, like a little bug up my bum to pull out a copy of Mathfinder, but I'm just, uh, <laughs> oh, I'm, excuse me, Pathfinder. And, um, uh, you know, uh, but typically, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think so are most people who play the game. But, but okay, Guillaume, considering your, your gaming history, I have to ask, like, what is when we ask this of all, all our guests? What is your first love of Genesis? And what I, what we mean is, 
what style of game or, or game setting and theme do you really like to get on the table when you play or run Genesis? Well, I'm really into whatever is medieval things. So, like, fantasy or not, like, I just love swords, shields, bows, crossbows, and all this. So with castles, kings, count, the, the, the court intrigue. Um, like, I, I, I did play a bit of sci-fi as well, or even modern, but it's not... It's it's not my favorite thing. I really love medieval things. Uh, as for the, the 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 kind of game, uh, since I've been through Pathfinder, I've played a lot of dungeon crawling, and I've kind of getting tired of this. So I really like um, mysteries, intrigue, social encounters. Like I, I like the fact that Genesis is really narrative based because it's easier to develop a character around something else than being a murder hobo. <laughs> really, because if you look back at the other games I played, it's like you just kill creatures or monster so you can so you can get loot and gold, mm. so you can buy better gear to be better at killing beasts and mm. creatures and all that. So it's just like uh, a cycle of I want to kill to get better to kill. <laughs> but in Genesis, you can do a whole session, like multiple session uh, in a row without actually drawing your sword, mm. and that's great. Yeah. Definitely, oh, there is yeah. there is certainly an artificial level thing going on with um, with Dungeons and Dragons as as well as uh, as Pathfinder, um, and I think that even D and D to an extent now is certainly moving more away or trying to move away more from that um, you know kill the monster and take their stuff, uh, but that's at the backbone of the system, and, and I, I agree a hundred percent that that Genesis doesn't have that. It's certainly got more of that narrative storytelling, which uh, which is obviously what you know we love here at the podcast, and uh, obviously what uh, you love as well because of your um, uh, your involvement with the Foundry and obviously Inquisition. Which kind of brings me to the next question. Um, so perhaps you can give us the pitch. Uh, you know, the, the Inquisition setting is a fantastic piece of work. Can I say? Uh, and it's you've obviously put a huge amount of effort in um, going into the development and the production of it, uh, and I'd sort of seen that before even uh, the the foundry was announced. This was a bit of a fan based project for you. So, can you tell us about um, the creation, whereabouts it started, where uh, you know its its origin story, for want of a better term? All right. So the idea came to me when, well, for, first of all, um, I made that setting from from before uh, Gen the Genesis RPG. I started to try to do this uh, while I was trying, uh, well, while I was playing the uh, Star Wars game, actually. So I was trying to convert Star Wars to medieval and then had magic, fantasy, and all that, but it didn't really work. So I just let that um, let that go and played Star Wars until Genesis was announced. And when it was, then I I was like, oh, that's a good opportunity to work on my own setting. And so, so I worked from basically from day one of Genesis to uh, for, uh, for that setting. And when the Foundry was announced, I was lucky to be invited. Uh, in the, in the Secret of Gods and work on the Foundry before it was actually announced. Mm. So that's where the, 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 the whole thing um, took form. As for why Inquisition, like, well, first of all, what is Inquisition? 
Mm. Inquisition is uh, a dark, uh, low fantasy medieval setting. So why it's dark? It's because it's not um, it's not the, the kind of fantasy you're gonna see in uh, in let's say Dungeon and Dragons where everything looks cool and like yeah I'm a hero I'm slaying monsters and all that I'm getting famous and no it's dark because um, the the whole theme of the setting is that people are not living happy life. Most of the people are poor. It's something closer to the real uh, medieval era of, uh, of let's say, Europe. So we have like all the poor people working hard, paying taxes for uh, to their lords, and the lords are corrupted, um, power hungry, and add to this, there is a church, um, the, the, the main religion of the setting, is the Church of the Creator, which is really um, oppressing the people because with the Inquisition going on, they're on the witch hunt and some innocents get uh, mixed in the the lot. So people are just like afraid of the church, oppressed by their lords. So it's actually kind of dark at this a bit of creatures talking in the dark. So yeah, so it's, it's really not a... A place you, like when you're reading the setting, you're not like, "Hey, I would like to live in that setting." No, you don't. <laughs> like, it's, it's it's grim there. Uh, it's it's also a low fantasy because it's nothing like, in terms of, of fantasy, it's nothing like your typical fantasy game. Like, there's no elves, orcs, dwarves. There's not even wizards and clerics. The only uh, fantasy elements you're gonna see in this, it's. Uh, a dark form of magic, which is called witchcraft. Mm-hmm. Plus, you can have some kind of mutated aberration that are just feeding on the people. So, yeah, but but for most of the the, the, the inhabitants of this world, there's nothing magical, really. Like, it's just like a normal medieval thing. Mm. And for those who are dealing with uh, with the supernatural, mostly the church and the monster hunters, yes, there's something else to this. Mm. But for most people, no, it's it's just like they're trying to live inside that difficult world. Mm. So, see, this relates very heavily to the next question I was going to ask. I was going to ask, like, what makes you know Inquisition as a setting different from other settings on the Foundry? And you've already elucidated a great number of points as to why, but I, I found my like like Bill when I w- when I was reading through Inquisition, like I was it, 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 I was page turning man I, I like going into the whole mythology of it like I was like wow wow I, I kept saying like I really want to play in this because it's so different in terms of that like as you put it that low fantasy element we we rarely see that in in role playing games you know where where high fantasy tends to be kind of the norm and. It's almost like I equated it to um, like a like a low fantasy, low magic version of like The Witcher. If people are familiar with those books or those uh, yep. uh, video games, mm-hmm. um, there was definitely some ties there. But, but then it's like you know, okay, if you took as you said that that medieval era in Europe that was so oppressive, and you get these just serfs living in the mud, you know, and they're filthy and they smell, and that's like ninety percent of the population, and you have this oppressive church that's constantly engaging in, in inquisitorious raids against, you know, looking for witches and vampires and werewolves. But the, the twist is like, oh yeah, those things are actually real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so, so I was fascinated, but I mean, when, 
when talking about what makes this setting so uniquely different, what kind of experiences have you had for that? And can you talk about that a bit more? Why the impetus to make this so different and really focus on that low fantasy? What intrigues, what in, what's intriguing about that? Well, it's a mix of things. First, uh, when I, when I, um, when I went to uh, the creation of this setting, I was playing Pathfinder. Well, I was just in between switching from Pathfinder to Star Wars trying to convert this, but Pathfinder was a high fantasy uh, setting, and it, there, there was what I called um, magic item porn, basically. So, like, <laughs> there's just so much <laughs> magic items, so much spells, mm. and all this, and we were getting tired of this. Like, all, all my, my gaming group at the table we were like, there's just too much stuff there. Like at low level, it's manageable, but as soon as you hit like level five, six, or around this, mm. there's go, there, there, just too many stuff. So by going low fantasy, we're removing the the kind of stuff that bothered us, mm. so we can focus on the narrative. Mm. So so we're not after the next big sword you're gonna get. You're after the, the next mystery you're gonna you, you're gonna solve, or the, the next. Um, I don't know the next political leader you're gonna bring down or something like this. Like the next war you're gonna you, you're gonna rage or so. So it's not about like getting a super high fantasy classical thing like the the flaming sword and the the, the lightning bolts and all this. So like mm. we wanted something more close to real medieval. So uh, yeah, and the inspiration for that game, like why. Where did I get my ideas from? Like, yeah, as you mentioned, there was the Witcher. The Witcher is mostly like the monster hunting part, so there's quite a lot of similarity between yeah. between the two. Mm -hmm. uh, and at that time, I was playing two uh, particular video games. There was the Darkest Dungeon uh, video game, which is really a, a difficult game. It's like um, an old school uh, 2D scroller, mm -hmm. but it's like. You're not safe there. Like you get a bunch of heroes, heroes die. It's really a hard game, a bit compared, like let's say, to Dark Souls in, in terms of difficulty. So, so there was that for the, the grim aspect of my setting, and I was also playing the um, Graveyard Keeper uh, game, which is basically a graveyard sim game. So it's not that related, but in the background of that game, there will there is an Inquisition. So you have the the Inquisitor, which is an NPC for which you do quests or whatever. But mm. it was like, oh, there's cool, like. There's an Inquisition going on, there are witches, but you're not actually seeing them because you're just the common folk there. So it was like an idea I took from that game as well. So mixing all those three games together, I came up with Inquisition. Because mm. it's it certainly, for me anyway, having played a little bit of uh, Vampire, um, I'm now, now I'm trying to remember the name of it. Um, the uh, basically when it, when it was during the the Dark Ages, that's what it was called, Vampire of the Dark Ages. Um, and uh, it, it reminded me very much of that, as well as talking about computer games. Um, not that I play a lot, but I've certainly watched my son play a lot. Um, is Assassin's Creed? It, it certainly reminded me a lot of those sorts of elements, with that little bit more fantasy um thrown in there as well. So. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, that it's certainly unique, and and the one thing that I have to mention as well, and it's something that we talked about in the last episode, where one of uh, one of our listeners has asked us the question about, you know, how big should my setting document be, and they talked about two hundred talents and and whatever else, and what I think you've done successfully in this is that a large chunk of what we're seeing in the book is all about the setting, 
itself without getting into the crunch. Yes, there are certainly crunch parts in there, but it gives you, as Chris said, it's, it, it is a page turner. It allows you to really immerse yourself in the environment of what the setting's about. So, yeah, congratulations on on getting that side of things right because I think that's a that's a good template if people are looking at what this setting should look like. This is certainly one of those things. Yeah. yeah, and I, I made sure to really split the book into two. So, like, you have the part one, which is the lore, hmm. uh, which is about, like, uh, around 40 pages of just lore. There's not a single rule in there. It's just, hmm. like, explaining the world, the religion, the politics, uh, factions. You have a, a timeline, which is covering about, like, 600 years uh, time is, um spawn of history. Hmm. You have, like, a gazette here. So, you even have simple... Uh, simple location from within the 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 world of Inquisition, mm. and then you have uh, about uh, sixty pages or so of actual gaming rule. Because mm. one of the things that I really loved about it was the timeline, and that's not something we see even in things like Terranoth. It doesn't. It, it, there isn't a timeline of what's happened when, so that if you're wanting to start a campaign that you can go, right, well, this is where the campaign's going to start, and you've got a little bit of an idea as to what's happened. So the fact that you've got a timeline in there, it's 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 remarkable and uh, very, very helpful from a GM, GMing perspective, definitely. Now, going on to sort of the, the, the process that you've gone through to create this document in the first place. Um, so from concept to final product, how long did it take to come together? And what did you find were some of the challenges associated with producing the product? Well, I've been working on this um, since before even Genesis. Mm-hmm. So it's been like what the Genesis has been out for two years now mm-hmm. or so, mm-hmm. something like this. Yep. Um, so I, I started a bit earlier, but it was not as serious work as within the last form, uh, the, the last months before the uh, actual foundry uh, announcement. So, um, but. I'd say about like maybe a year of actual serious work into this. Mm-hmm. Um, thing is that when I first, one of the challenge I had is what when I first started this setting. So I, I, I like that basically the lore idea. I had that, mm-hmm. and I had to make the, uh, the the rules for this. Uh, thing is that when I first did this, I I, I had no idea that setting was going to be in an online online store at some point so it was basically intended for playing at my gaming table like mm. like the, the original public for this was about like five people so there was uh, lots of things i did inside that setting that was okay for all of us at the table mm. but knowing that now it it's going to be sold i had to change a few things to be more um not politically correct but more like acceptable for anyone to play mm. For for example, uh, in the first version of Inquisition, uh, witchcraft was something female exclusive. Like mm-hmm. you couldn't be, uh, because right now there's the warlock, which is like basically the same thing as a, as a witch, it's just a, a male witch. Mm-hmm. But in the original version, there was no warlock. If you wanted to be a witch, you had to be a, a woman. Mm-hmm. And for my gaming group, it was okay. Because like, we we had one girl playing and she didn't want to be a witch anyway. 
she just made a, um, an entertainer, mm. and the uh, I, I have a witch in my in my group, which is played by uh, my brother actually, but uh, he, he doesn't mind playing a female character. Mm. But it's not something that all people are uh, necessarily um, comfortable to play with. Mm -hmm. So, like, I don't remember if it was Scott or maybe Christopher from uh, Excess Advantage, but they told me, like, you you cannot put your sitting like this directly available to the public because some people might get uncomfortable with few elements. I I just named one, but there was, like, other few things. uh, Like, for example, uh, another uh, great example is that when I first made this, I wanted to be close to... Um, to the actual uh, medieval era of real hurt, hmm. so I, I put I did put some elements like cruelty and second-rate citizen and all that. And uh, it was I think it was Scott that told me that well, it's not because it's closer to reality than let's say Dungeon and Dragon hmm. that it's great because like medieval era had a lot of awful stuff going on so you don't necessarily want to reproduce this in, inside a, an RPG setting mm. so i was like okay so i did switch a few things i think i came up with a product that is actually pretty great mm. so okay <clears throat> in previous episodes we talked a lot about playtesting um, you know as you were developing this and playtesting it what were some of the biggest learning experiences to come out of your playtesting for this product I mean, you obviously talked about stuff during like design feedback but were there were there many changes you needed to implement you know mechanically or otherwise um, as a result of your playtesting efforts oh so much so, so <laughs> much thing I had to change because like even when your 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 experience within this system like I, I mean like I played Star Wars for, for a few years already so um, w- when you're going with new, stuff with existing rules like let's say you're making up new adversaries uh, it's kind of easy actually because you just know that like a stormtrooper can be recycled into some kind of militia unit or whatever but when you're going into new rules like you you're coming you're coming up with something that genesis didn't have from the start hmm. uh some wild things can happen <laughs> like <laughs> uh, the witchcraft uh, magic Mm-hmm. It's something completely revamped, and there was a lot of adjustment I had to make uh, because some spells or specific specific effects were clearly broken. Like mm-hmm. it was either too powerful or not enough or whatever. Mm-hmm. We can talk maybe about witchcraft later, but there's also the um, the damn talents, uh, which basically l- uh, lets you play a, a vampire, a werewolf, or a grave walker. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of things that. Uh, like when I wrote this, oh, it seems fine. And then after that, oh, maybe not so much. I'm going to have to readjust things. One of the problem I encountered was the fact that supernatural beings, like the aberrations and all this, are resistant to mundane weaponry. Like if you want to go after them, you you have to equip yourself with silver weapons. Mm -hmm. And basically how the mechanics work is that these creatures have really high SOG value, like something with a value, uh, SOG value of like six or seven, mm-hmm. it's not that of a big deal, really. So the only way to deal with these with, with these creatures is by equipping the, um, the silver weaponry. Mm-hmm. And at first, silver weapons, it, it, they basically, it's just like normal weapons, uh, but their critical, um, their critical rating is reduced. Mm-hmm. And thing is that, well, at first it was like this, and then you had the burn Thing that 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 was uh, added to silver. Thing is that even if you have like a weapon capable of creating and all this, yeah. the burning was kind of useless actually because burning uh, is reduced by the soak value, 
And it was just like, yeah, I'm going to burn that creature, but chances are it won't do anything to it anyway. So yeah, <laughs> so I had this this uh, this encounter in playtesting. It was the first uh, supernatural creature I made. It was a banshee, so they was fighting that that creature. And the party's most heavy hitter could basically do nothing against it. Mm. Like it, it, it has to, to roll. The, the player had to roll a lot of successes to get through, or else it wasn't going down, and the burn quality wasn't doing a thing anyway. So I had to readjust all the silver weapon rework. Mm. So yeah, I, a lot of stuff has changed due to um, due, due to playtesting. So for for everyone trying to come up with new rules, so being um, pretty active on the uh, multiple com- uh, Genesis community platforms like the Discord server, Facebook, and all that. Mm-hmm. You, you have a bunch of people coming up with great ideas for something totally new. And like, yeah, just make sure to playtest this because it, it <laughs> might work, but you might have surprises as well. Well, that old adage, no no game survives contact with the player base, right? Exactly. exactly. Yeah, sure. <laughs> now, one of the things that you mentioned um, just there briefly was, was about the magic system. And in your setting, you've virtually rewritten magic and placed it under the one banner of witchcraft. Now, can you talk yeah. to us briefly uh, about how you went about that process what some of the things that you found that you needed to add? What were some of the things that you needed to remove? Uh, yeah, sure. So first things first, Genesis Magic system is just super great. Mm. Like it, I really, I really love that system. There, there is nothing like spell slots and all this. You don't have an existing uh, spell list. So I really love that system and the free form magic. Like yeah, I'm gonna cast that spell, and at the moment I'm gonna cast it, I'm gonna add some effects, uh, tweak it a little bit. So I really love like that system. Mm. But for me, there was. It was just not uh, great enough for Inquisition. Not great enough, but not compatible enough with Inquisition. Because first, the kind of magic I wanted in my, in my sitting was not something flashy. So I didn't want witches to hurl fireballs, shoot lightnings, summon creatures and all this. I wanted something more subtle. Because the kind of role you have with a witch is not the same one as you're going to have with a wizard or let's just say with the, the generic primal or dive-in magic. What I wanted was something more intrigue-based. So a witch is not that potent in combat, really, because there's a restriction uh, for casting spells. But if you just look at the um, at the, the spell list, you're going to have Bewitchment, you're going to have Curse that is making a combat, but it's slightly modified. You can have Plague, Polymorph, Scry, and Ward. So there's no... There's nothing filling the role of an ad- of an attack spell. You don't have the witch is not damage dealer. Mm. All right. Mm. So most of the spells that was used with, in my playlist thing was outside of combat actually. Mm. So so there's this and another thing that I did well it's it's working well for generic genesis but not in my case is that if you look at the spell list uh, from the generic one, the, the the core rulebook. A spell is about its intent, not its actual narrative uh, appearance. So, like, if you're you're casting a, I don't know, let's say a curse. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in my mind, a curse is supposed to be a curse, but in gaming effect, it could be like just I don't know some kind of impeding fog cloud or whatever, and it's going to be a curse spell because it's filling the role of curse spell. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I know it's working well, but for me, there's just something. It's bugging me to some to some extent. So. The the um the spells I came up with inside uh the w- with the Inquisition setting are actually fitting the, the name. Like if you're casting a curse, it's actually a curse. You're you're doing a plague. It's gonna be something disease based or like 
is crying, it's always crying. Award is always some kind of invisible predict- pre- prediction you're going to cast. So like, it's always like this. Mm. So yeah, for, for me, it just worked better. And one interesting thing I added like that, that is completely new from scratch is the empathic link. Because you know, I didn't want my, my witches to be able to cast spell too easily. All right. So what I did is that in order to cast a spell, the character has to have an empathic connection to the target. Hmm. So how do you acquire that kind of um, of link? It's basically through uh, personal belongings or to body parts, hmm. which which does fits with the grim setting uh, <laughs> team. So basically, you, maybe maybe you can get. Let's say you you want to to cast a spell on the guard to to charm them or whatever. Uh, you might have to to get a piece of hair before, or maybe like a shoelace, or maybe a, a bit of blood. Mm-hmm. So casting spells on uh, other people actually requires preparation. You cannot just go like improvising. Okay, I'm 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 in a, I'm, I'm running into a battle now, and I'm going to hurl spells at everyone is standing before me. No, you know you won't be able to do this. There's few ways to bypass this, like going with talents and such. But basically, you're gonna need to obtain these. Th- that empathic link prior to casting. Mm. Bill, this is one of the most fascinating things I've found about your take on magic, and I really enjoyed it because, like, one, it, it's obvious that that although you have structured encounter uses, they're 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 typically the majority of the spell options in, in this setting are very you know defensive or hindering in nature or very or very slow. Um, with the exception of polymorph, polymorph could be quite dangerous in combat. <laughs> but, but 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 the but the thing is, like like with the way you've set this up, where you have these these um uh, these empathic links they have to have, like you you can't just do it. You have to prepare. Like if you don't have, uh, I mean, at the very least, a close belonging, you physically can't use magic on the target. Like you can't. Like the this is what it is. And even then, stuff like like a personal belonging. It's still like it's insanely difficult. You have to upgrade the difficulty, like and and even something having like hair or nails or even dried blood is still you take a negative to your check. I mean, you you have to get to the point where you've got like like fresh blood from the target to be able to cast without penalty at all. And and that's I mean that that's a that's a fascinating balancing mechanic for some of the more powerful abilities that are out there as well. And so I found that to be a very unique and intriguing balance in, in how you did this. And I think a good lesson for other designers out there as well mm. to go outside of the box when you're trying to create something unique, you can use the existing rules that are there because we have these casting penalties that already exist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've just expanded on that to a very interesting degree. And I just, bravo. It was, it was very well, very intriguing and very well thought out. Thank you. And in this case, it was even more important to balance because the witch is the only is the only character actually able to use magic. So, mm. so it's not like you you had an alternative to spell casting. You don't have a wizard and a, a diving caster and all this. So in this case, since well, magic is powerful. Every everyone knows that. So there are only a limited people actually capable of casting spells. So it has to be kind of restricting or difficult somehow or else these people will just like easily take over the world mm. makes total sense oh i i absolutely love it okay so <laughs> we talked about this a lot and we've gone into some details but but as we're leading into wrapping up our conversation 
you know, here at the Forge, we love to get our our spoilers on when we can. So <laughs> could you maybe give us a glimpse of something exciting or unique in the Inquisition setting that we haven't talked about that that players would not find anywhere else in any other setting? Um, well, I think I will go with one specific talent from the Gravewalker talents. And uh, just to explain it this, this a bit, the Gravewalker is what the church called the damned. The damned are basically uh, humans corrupted, but uh, instead of just going into a, a frenzy aberration, they're keeping their intelligence. So you have for now three time of them. You have the werewolf, the vampire, and the Gravewalker. And the Gravewalker is actually a really funny... Uh, I had a lot of fun designing that that, that them. Uh, so basically, a, a Gravewalker is a zombie, an intelligent zombie, minus the uh, decaying flesh. So it's just like an undead with all the cool features of an undead. Uh, there are slight physical uh, changes when becoming a Gravewalker. So like y- your hair turned white or whatever, but you can hide it. If you want to go into town without people knowing that you're a Gravewalker, it's something doable. But how do you actually become a, a Gravewalker is through death. So you have to die in order to uh, resurrect as a, a Gravewalker. So you, you're raised from the, from the grave. And the talent that you have to pick up here is actually kind of funny because since you have to die, the talent is actually some kind of drawback. So in order to 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 become a Gravewalker, you have to select the tier one um, tier one talent, Fear the Reaper, which is a, a passive talent. So basically, it's make it it makes you more easily killable. <laughs> so for first. You have a condemned, so uh, your crit- the critical rating of any attacks against your character is reduced by one, and every attack is gained vicious two or in- increase the vicious rating by two. So you're really vulnerable there. Like everyone's gonna crit you, and they're gonna crit you better. Hmm. And then you have um, the fact that the uh, every um, every check you make, the difficulty is increased. One uh, is upgraded once, so you have the chance of rolling a despair on basically every roll, and finally you can you cannot even heal from critical injury. So so you cannot like use the medicine uh, skill to heal your critical injury. So so you it, it's just bad stuff there. The only cool stuff you're gonna have is that once per session you can reroll a die not showing a despair or a threat. But it's not that big of a bonus considering all the bad things you have. Mm. So basically, when you're, you're taking that talent, you're going to die. Like, it's only a matter of time be- before you pa- mm. you're getting killed. And when you do, on the night following your death, mm. you remove that talent from your talent pyramid to switch it to the Gravewalker talent, which is uh, all the good stuff coming with being an undead. So you have, for example, you have life sight. So basically you can see life energy. So even if you're in pitch dark, you're going to see a human passing by because they're just emanating life energy. And it's basically what the Gravewalker talent does with uh, coming up with uh, the silver weakness. Mm -hmm. But it opens your character for all cool uh, talents that are giving uh, abilities that are just exclusive for grave walker so you have like spit you can spit some kind of acid like liquid you can uh, have covers of blood you you can cheat death and all that so, so there's a lot of cool abilities and the way i built all these talents are on the same concept as um scott some something 
something strange a setting with vampires and werewolves mm-hmm. so it's it's like basically the same kind of talents uh, that goes for the grave walker and it's actually quite cool because you won't see any grave walker anywhere like I, I really made that up from the scratch nice very very cool <laughs> i i found it great loved it well that's certainly <laughs> something that, that people can look forward to when they when they take a look at the product so we always ask this of everyone what's next for you in the foundry well, i have a lot of stuff coming up for the foundry mm-hmm. uh, but it's taking time since i'm doing this like all alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first, the thing I'm actually working on right now is uh, is called Skills Guide. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's going to be a, a document about n- a narrative use of skills. Because when you're looking at the, the skills description inside the core rulebook, you have few tables like how symbols can be spent. Uh, let's say for like combat check critical, it's medicine checks for healing uh, strain and all this. Mm-hmm. But you don't have directions for using the other skills or skills outside of structured encounter beside the few bullet points inside the skill chapter so what i'm i'm, I'm doing with this uh, with this guide is that i'm taking a skill so let's say uh, athletics for example so athletics can be used for a lot of things you have like uh, running you have jumping climbing swimming so i'm taking all of these skill which i call sub skills and i just go over how can symbols can be spent when using these? Uh, and I, I put a, a, a few examples situation for, for each skill. Mm. So it's going to be a, a lengthy document. Like I'm not done yet and I'm, I'm about maybe 70 pages, I think, so far. Wow. I think it's going to wrap about like 100 pages. Mm. So there is this coming up. Mm-hmm. That's my current project. And after that, I'm going to re- revisit Inquisition with lots of new um of small uh, rule complements mm-hmm. so i'm there's there's just going to be like few um few pages about like uh, adding something so for example i want to uh expand the um I'll, i i want to i want to add a new type of damned uh, character so we have like uh, the, the trees vampire werewolf and grave walker i'm i want to add another one uh with the expanded um player's book coming out Soon, I, I hope uh, I'm gonna expand on the the seafarer of the setting because for now there's actually no uh, s- there is no vehicle inside the uh, the Inquisition setting. But if you look at the lore, there's actually sea trade going around, so we need ships to, 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 to for this. So I'm gonna have a module on this. I want another module on um, building a kingdom, kingdom management, because uh, it, let's say in your game, you, I don't know, you, you save uh, you save the count for some embarrassing thing or defeat or whatever, so they can reward you uh, a small bit of lands and for you to manage so you can build a town or something like this. So I, I want rules around this. I want to expand on alchemy. So like there's a bunch of stuff coming mm. up for Inquisition in addition to adventure module that I still want to, to add to it as well. Very cool. Well, well, Guillaume, it's been a wonderful conversation. I, for those of you listening, um, I, I really encourage you to check out Inquisition. It's got, you know, it's like, you, you look at it's like, oh, wow, uh, a, a, a fantasy setting. It's as, as I hope we've elucidated, it's so much more than that. The idea of dark fantasy, or I guess as as, as Guillaume put it, lo, low, low fantasy, mm. is such a rarity in this hobby. 
Um, and to see it done in this fashion while still keeping those same elements of the supernatural and a lot of the things of really classical medieval lore uh, that's almost you know historic or semi-historic to a very large degree is just it's it's extremely unique. And so I, I you know we we found this to be a very strong offering in the foundry, and uh, we seriously encourage you guys to check it out. So, Bill, thank you so much for for coming on and talking to us about this. We really do appreciate your time. Was a pleasure. Awesome. All right, Chris. So, um, yeah, if they if people want to know more about uh, what's available on the Foundry, they just need to go to www.drivethroughrpg.com. Um, I think we've got some questions that we really need to get into. Should we um, fire over to that? I, I, I think I think we need to uh, uh, try and squeak our way underneath that hammer. Indeed. Under the hammer. And welcome to Under the Hammer, the segment where we will answer your games and rules questions about the Genesis roleplay game as it impacts both rules and content creation, and of course, play. Now, this episode, we have a couple of interesting questions. So, Chris, would you like to read out our first question? Absolutely. It comes in from Rob Almond via Facebook. He says, hi, guys. I have an Android question specifically about running. I use the access system action and successfully access the system. I use my incidental to go to a piece of ice protecting a subsystem. The rules then state that I must then encounter the ice, meaning I perform a break the ice, a, br- a break ice action. That would then be the second action in a single turn, which is against the core mechanics of the system. So how does that work? If I'm forced to wait until my next turn, it gives me the opportunity to game the system by spending maneuvers to equip optimal icebreakers or simply run away like brave Sir Robin. <laughs> I cannot perform a second action on my turn, but the rules compel me to break the ice. Help me, GM Huli. You're my only hope. <laughs> you want to take this one, man? Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, for those who aren't familiar with it, um, you want to be looking at the section under hacking. Uh, in the core rules, and if you've got uh, Shadow of the Beanstalk, which is what specifically we're talking about, um, you, you're looking in that sort of section under um, the the net. Um, so the first point of call is that every piece of ice in Shadow of the Beanstalk has the following phrase, and this is a key thing. Now it says, if a runner or character attempts to break this ice... Now, this phrase is very important mainly because it means that the ice just stays there doing nothing until it is interacted with, like a big wall of data, for want of a better term. Uh, every barrier ice, especially, um, uh, you know, the, the barrier ice itself, the rules are that you immediately encounter it and must do something to it. But as I just mentioned, it does not do anything unless you're going to interact with it. The best way to think of that, it's like a door or a lock on a box or a security panel in the real world. It's going to protect the contents of what's behind it. Probably the best way, uh, and this is certainly how I like to explain it to, to people, is that you should picture the scene where you are a thief with you know your thieves' tools. Uh, you need to access a building, and inside that building is a series of doors. And beyond each door is a room with some sort of an object in it. That, does that make sense so far, Chris? So far. Okay. So with your thieves' tools, um, they are your computer programs, um, to, to make it a, a bit of a metaphor. 
the building is the computer system itself or the mainframe. Uh, and the doors are the various access points uh, to the subsystems within the overall system. Uh, and the rooms are, uh, are those subsystems. So some of the doors are going to have locks, some don't. Each door is going to be labeled with what the object in the room is going to be. Um, and that can be things like a filing cabinet, uh, one or more television screens, or, or a series of switches. Uh, now, it won't necessarily be very specific about exactly what it is, as far as, uh, you know, whether it's cameras to this particular part of the building. It may just be camera room or something like that. But it's going to give a general idea of what goes on in that particular subsystem. Now, when your characters are hacking into a system, they must first find the system, which can happen through, um, you know, the narrative or various skill checks when you're trying to find where the system is housed. Uh, and once they find it, it's then time to start breaking into the building. Okay. So in this scene, if we look at it, um, in it would normally occur in, in two rounds. So in the first round, you would have your action, which is entering the building um, or accessing the system. Uh, your maneuver would be pulling out your tools or, in this case, activating the program. In round two, we have an incidental, which is you move to the door, which is your attempt um, to access, so attempt access, uh, as it says in the rulebook. Uh, and then your action is going to be um, to break the lock, or in this case, break ice. Uh, and lastly, your maneuver, if uh, if you break the lock, you go into the room and use the object, which is enact command. So that might be a lot to take in. So if you want to read on at home, 128 states that your character can only encounter a piece of ice if they can perform the break ice action. And that's on page 129. To attempt to break through it. Otherwise, they have to wait until their next turn. Now, this is done so that you aren't forced to take two actions in a single turn, which, as um, as uh, as Rob says, is against the, the, the rules of the game, effectively, that you can't take two actions in a turn. So right. what it's saying is that, yeah, you can't do that. That's not how that works. Now, some things to remember. Uh, when ice is deactivated, it reactivates automatically at the end of the runner's next turn. So it doesn't reactivate at the end of the current turn. It's the runner's next turn. So until then, it cannot be re reactivated by any means, uh, including a sysop performing the enact command maneuver. Um, and if a runner spends results on, on using special abilities to keep ice deactivated longer, such as spending an advantage or a triumph, uh, if you look at the uh, spending advantage and triumphs table on page 130, it cannot be reactivated for that, uh, for that extended duration. Now, this makes the talent custom code a must-have. And if you don't know what it is, go and look it up. Uh, I'm not going to go over it here. It's uh, this is <laughs> this answer is long enough as it is, uh, but custom code uh, it's a must-have as it gives auto advantages to the check. Yes. Now, additionally, don't forget the talents like burn through, which allows the character to perform a second break ice action, 
as an incidental if they first have completed a successful break ice action in the current round um, just by spending three strain. Yeah, it's really useful. Mm. So those yeah. talents are really, really important. So, so yeah, it, it, it kind of, when you're doing running, you, it, it really does sort of turn the rules on its head a little bit, but it still follows that, that basic premise that you can only do one maneuver and you can only do one action. Where it does come into play really, really well is that if you're um, doing a tandem run with another runner, because you can then get in there, deactivate the ice. The ice is deactivated for the end of your turn and the end of your next turn, which means that the person that you're running with can then go in and do whatever it is that they need to do while that ice is deactivated. I hope that answers the question, Rob. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a lengthy answer. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, running running can get complicated, but no, that's that's good. Makes perfect sense. Absolutely. So All right, do we have another question? We do, we do. So uh, our second question is from Toby Wheatley, who sent us an email with an elongated question, but we'll get through it. Uh, and he says, "Hi guys, I'm in the process of creating a new setting or world, and simultaneously a campaign for it. In my summary." Um, sorry, in summary, my question is, how much detail is best to represent an aspect of the world in an RPG? It's obviously not necessarily not necessary to go uh, to infinite detail, but being too general, I think, would lose the feel of the setting element being represented. So I suppose the sub-question is, how do I then make things like this matter to the PCs? Mm-hmm. In more detail... And as I said, this is a long question. Uh, my setting is a steampunk, magepunk world, and the key premise is that some people have the ability to manipulate ether energy. Uh, this means that they can create or fix things which use it. Uh, it works as a power source held in a vessel linked to or inside the machine and also makes the machines alive, in inverted commas. Uh, the larger and older, the closer uh, to sentience. Um, it is used in mechanical creatures as well as airships. This is sounding really familiar. Mm. <laughs> uh, the, ether ma- uh, the ether machines can be uh, talked to and can respond telepathically with images and feelings, but not words, as they're not fully sentient. I'm trying to figure out how to best represent this in Genesis and how to make it worth acquiring. I initially considered a skill, but I'm leaning more towards the rank talent at the moment. However, I'm not sure how to break it down. And it goes further. Um, A suggestion from one of my initial playtesters is a ranked talent, which allows you to use your interaction ability with more skills each time. So a tier one, talk to, interact with machines and use mechanics. Tier two, pick one skill. Tier three, pick one skill, et cetera, et cetera. So when you get it, you uh, can't use your ranks in things like coercion, or negotiation until you have improved. Another option is to make a new skill which is only accessible when you have a tier one talent which activates the skill with one rank then you upgrade as a normal skill. This would be used for making or fixing ether creations but other interactions, for example social, would be able to be used by anyone. The third option, and it's his least favourite, is to add boost die or upgrades to mechanics checks either to the number of times the skill or talent of ether manipulation is taken 
when working on ether-based machines. This again leaves other skills unaffected. As I'm less experienced in creating and playing than you both, I hoped you could give me some advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Well, advice we can certainly do, Toby. <laughs> uh, and 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 I I'll, I'll be blunt. I dislike all three of your options. They're they're way too unnecessarily complicated. But let's let's back up a bit. Yep. So first of all, it sounds like a very interesting setting, Toby. It sounds mm-hmm. like a lot of fun. Uh, obviously, it reminds Huli of something very specific. Um, <laughs> for me, for me, it actually reminds me very much of Eberron, mm. uh, specifically um, our artificers in the Eberron setting and, and interacting with bound elementals. Mm. Um, now, to answer your general question that you let off with, usually you can keep campaign details to fluff unless they have a concrete mechanical component you want to represent. But most importantly, there is the need for players to interact with the detail of that ca- that you're speaking of, that campaign setting, to the point that they need to make checks, okay? Mm-hmm. If, if it's going to matter in an encounter or a scene. And honestly, that's what it sounds like in this case. It's gonna, mm-hmm. it's, it sounds like this is a regular feature that should be accounted for in mechanics. Mm-hmm. So to give you a succinct suggestion or opinion, I don't like any of your options, Toby. You need to consider a few key points here, which should determine how you proceed with this mechanically. Number one, whenever you're having to develop a new mechanic, keep it as simple as possible. If you need a paragraph to describe it, see if you can get it down to a sentence. All right, that should be your first clue. Number two, instead of creating something new from whole cloth or mishmashing four, two to three or four different, five different mechanics together, which is really what you're trying to do with all three of your options into some form or fashion, just reskin an existing single mechanic, if at all possible. Yeah. Number three, remember this. If people are going to, if characters are going to have different levels of capability with this, meaning that, you know, this ether interaction, some are going to be better than others uh, through natural ability and or training. That's what skills are for. If you can succeed in one moment doing this and then fail the next moment doing this because of a role, for example, that went poorly or situationally, that's what skills are for. Yeah. If everyone in this world can do the thing, whatever it is, at the same level of quality, like like it's just a piece of knowledge they have, that's what talents are for. Mm. Even the tier talents you suggest, yeah. right? Mm. Now, what you've described sounds very much like a magical version of mechanics, to be honest. Mm. Um, so I wouldn't go with either th- any of the three options, man. I would go with option four. I would handle it very simply through a new custom skill. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe something like, just call it Ether, mm. right? Um, yeah. That would be used to build and repair Ether creations and interact with them. Mm. Based on what you said, it sounds like you want to have this differentiation between uh, you know, building and repairing them and then interacting with them so that everyone could interact with them, but everyone still can interact with them. It's It's like... Considering the restricted or situational use, it's fine having one skill to accomplish all of this. It's akin to the computer skill in a space opera setting. That's a skill that's used to repair uh, computer systems and actually code. But it's also the skill used to, quote unquote, talk to computer systems and Mm. and to interact with them. Mm. Right. And, And that's perfectly acceptable, especially considering how restricted or situational ether is. 
And don't make the skill accessible just only via a talent. It's an unnecessary thing you don't need to do. Just make it a standard skill. Put it on the career list of a, a new career. Maybe something like Ether Smith or something <laughs> like that. Um, but by doing that, it means that everyone in the world, if they want to get good at this, could purchase ranks in it as a non-career skill, like any other skill. Mm -hmm. And if they happen to have it on their career list, they can purchase it cheaper. It also means that they can make the check to interact even if they don't have ranks. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, you could also create a career skill talent for this, like Huli we talked about in the die-casting segment. <laughs> just a bit ago. Yeah. Uh, but again, such a talent, if you decide to create one, it doesn't grant you the skill. It just puts it on your career list. You're not changing a fundamental mechanic here. Mm. Um, and then, you know, as to how to represent different levels of interaction, it's just a skill check, man. When you got a better die pool, you're going to succeed more often mm. and have better interactions and capabilities that you can do uh, with that check, um, you know, through extra successes, extra advantages than you otherwise would. I mean, honestly, this method, it keeps it simple. It keeps it in line with the other core mechanics of the system. Don't fall into the trap, Toby, of thinking you have to create entirely new mechanics just because you have an entirely new, awesome setting aspect. Yeah. Mm. And that's my advice. Absolutely. The only thing that I'd like to add to that is that if he wanted to, and I know that it's been done in another setting I was involved in, um, is, what he can do is that if he only wants a certain type of person to be accessing that particular skill, if we want to use ether as as the skill, that sounds like a little bit like a racial uh, ability. And we see that in Terranoth when it comes to elves. So elves have automatic access to the divine skill. So, you know, that's that's another way of doing it if you want to restrict the user of of that particular skill, if you want to go down that path, that's well, you could also, could also treat it like a magic skill, where it's like, mm. look, you can't attempt this unless you have a rank in the skill. Yeah, yeah. But at that, but at that point, nobody could use the skill to interact with these creations. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so. so, so I don't really recommend that. Just you know, keep keep it simple. Yeah. And you know, in terms of you know maybe, you know, you, you could even go so far as to say, you know what. Uh, you need to have a you need to have a rank if you want to actually build or create something with it. Mm. That's an easy compromise. Yeah. Well, there you go. So that um, yeah, hopefully that that answers your question, Toby. I know that um, Toby I was involved in with the dice pool um, and uh, great guy. And uh, so yeah, thanks for your question. Hopefully that does that does an uh, answer that for you. Well, Chris, that brings us to the end of our show. So, um, which is a real shame, but that was um, that was long, um, but it was great. Can I just it was say content? Though, and I, I loved, I love talking with Guillaume. So, yes, absolutely. And uh, I've, I tell you what, when it comes to magic, I've learnt some stuff just by um, you know hashing it out. So, hopefully, our listeners have as well. Um, but going on to our questions, um, if you, um, if you'd like us to answer any questions about developing your own content for Genesis, being a GM or a player or general questions about the rules themselves, you can send us an email to forgegenesis at d20radio.com or you can post your questions to either Facebook, Twitter, YouTube or any of our social media sites just by searching at Forge Genesis. Also be sure to join the 
even larger discussion in the D20 Radio Facebook group where we nerds congregate to cross-pollinate. Yes, and don't forget to give us a like or follow us as well. Plus, if you like what you hear or find what we do on the podcast really helpful, let others know about it by sharing our episode announcements and by dropping us a review on your favorite podcatcher, including iTunes, and of course, throwing us a like on Facebook and a nice review. Uh, You can also visit our website at ForgeGenesis.com, which is also, as we've said, the repository for all the cool content that we are developing right here on the show and making available to all of you. Very cool. And be sure to tune in to our next episode where we're going to return to our deep dives on archetype creation by taking a look at those all-too-cunning and sly species and archetypes. That's right. We'll be talking about the ins and outs of custom species and archetypes who rely on cunning as their primary characteristic and how to craft the best savvy species you can. Uh, And of course, Julie and I will each be building our own cunning-focused species (laughs) to whet your appetite. Well, that's a wrap for us. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you join us next time as we continue to explore the Genesis role-playing game. I'm Jim Hurley. May your triumphs be many and your despairs be few. And I'm GM Chris, wishing you peace, love, and good game. And remember, The Forge Podcast, helping you hone your gaming edge. The Forge, a Genesis podcast, is a proud member of the D20 Radio Network. For more information about the network, visit www.d20radio.com. The Forge is a fan-generated podcast. All the information provided on the podcast, the social media, and related website is not affiliated with Fantasy Flight Games or any of their licensors. The content of this podcast remains a property of The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast, and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. The Genesis role-playing game, Genesis logo, Genesis Foundry, content, and all material remain the property of Fantasy Flight Games. All products available on the Genesis Foundry website remain the property of their respective companies and individuals. For more information about The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast, visit www.forgegenesis.com. Thank you.